I think we always felt like we were kind of equal. Obviously. To make the group stronger or to let me be stronger. And that decision was to let Paul in to make the group stronger. Instead of going for an individual thing, we we went for the strongest format, you know, and for equals. This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. Hello there. Feeling some deja vu? Well, that's because this is a repost of last week's Fine Tuning episode. A relevant piece of info that we did not include in our original airing of this episode four days ago has just come to our attention. So we've added that bit of information around the one hour, 34 minute mark. It's not very long, just a couple minutes, but we felt it was important enough to add and re-upload. So we apologize for the initial oversight, but we have now corrected it. In the interest of full transparency, we have not edited or deleted anything from our original conversation. We just added the information at the relevant moment of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've already heard this episode, you can just skip ahead to that relevant bit. Again, it's around the one hour, 34 minute mark. If you are just hearing this episode for the first time, then <laughs> you don't have to do anything. You can yeah. <laughs> just enjoy and uh, yes, just let her roll. And yeah, hello, welcome. Thank you so much. And now on to the show. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about that green-eyed monster. The mortal sin, the J-word, jealousy. In the tune-in universe, there is a member of the Beatles who is afflicted by a pervasive, blinding jealousy problem. That person is Paul McCartney. Paul is called jealous or envious in tune-in 13 times. In all but three cases, those words were chosen by Mark Lewison. Aside from talented, jealous and envious is TuneIn's favorite way to describe Paul McCartney, the century's most successful songwriter, and one of the four main subjects of this Beatles biography. It's more emphasized than funny, more than smart, bright, friendly, or nice. More than creative, artistic, inventive, and original combined. For the Paul McCartney of TuneIn, jealousy is not an occasional emotional state. It is one of his most fundamental personality traits. To borrow a phrase, he's just a jealous guy. Speaking of, John Lennon is never described as envious in TuneIn. He is called jealous twice, both regarding his girlfriend Cynthia, 
and his song Jealous Guy is once referenced in a footnote. So jealousy is apparently not an important driver in John Lennon's psyche or behavior patterns? No, but it is crucial to Paul McCartney's. What is Paul so excessively jealous about? Well, a lot of things, according to Mark Lewison. He's jealous of his bandmates getting more attention or more desirable girls. He's envious of John Lennon's abilities. And he's extremely jealous of John Lennon's attention and friendship. Most often, these axes of envy converge to bring one man into the crosshairs of Paul McCartney's out-of-control jealousy. Stuart Sutcliffe joined the band in spring of 1960 and left in the summer of 1961. He and Paul never got along well, for multiple reasons, but Toonin characterizes their conflict as stemming predominantly from Paul's envy of Stuart, and especially of Stuart's friendship with John Lennon. Now, this conflict is a significant aspect of the Beatles' early history, and by Paul's own admission, he was jealous of Stuart Sutcliffe's relationship with John. Paul has said so publicly several times, because he's had to tell this story several times, and we are well aware of all of those quotes. So to be clear, we do not object to the inclusion of this topic in Tune In. What we do object to is the disproportionate emphasis placed on Paul's personal jealousy rather than the legitimately difficult and frustrating challenges presented by Stewart's presence within the band. This emphasis sets a precedent that Paul's jealousy is unjustified, corrosive, and corrupting, compromising his honesty, clouding his judgment, and causing unnecessary strife within an otherwise functional unit. This emphasis also guides the reader to assume McCartney is always in the wrong in his conflicts with Sutcliffe, who is portrayed as essentially without fault, a victim who suffers Paul's unfair antagonism with laudable maturity and restraint. We find this framing unbalanced and unfair. When a historical work chronicles this type of personality conflict, it's incumbent upon the historian to present both sides. Tune In is a biography of the Beatles. Paul and Stuart are both Beatles, so they both deserve empathetic, good-faith representation. We don't think Tune In provides that, and we'll show you why. We want to make clear that this episode is not an attempt to downplay the depth of Paul's love for John Lennon or of Paul's investment in their friendship. We firmly believe Paul was heavily invested in safeguarding both his creative and personal relationship with John. However, Tunin does not portray Paul's resentment of Stuart as a warm and heartfelt desire to protect the Lennon-McCartney bond. Instead, Tunin presents McCartney's resentment as rooted in his desire for attention, control, and the status conferred by being Leader Lennon's number one. 
So in this episode, we'll be looking at how Paul's jealousy is handled. Now, the outsized emphasis on Paul's jealousy is a matter of fact and numbers, uh, but we will be examining the bigger questions. Who is given the benefit of the doubt? Who isn't? Who is always assumed to have the worst or the best motives and intentions? And what do these choices signify about TuneIn's overall narrative? So the way the Stu and Paul conflict is introduced is perfectly fine. From page 417, Stuart's position in the group did not sit well with Paul, however, whose objection ran on two fronts. First, though he'd helped encourage Stu to join, he couldn't really see the point of taking on a bass player who couldn't play bass. It wasn't the only time John had brought an unmusical close mate into the group, but Pete Shotton's inability had been no particular disadvantage in the Skiffle days. Now, at a time when the other local rock groups existed on a higher plane, and the quarrymen patently had to improve, it was nonsensical to shackle themselves to someone who didn't know his instrument. Yeah, so that's all fine. Yeah, agreed. This starts out completely rational, and Paul's objections are laid out pretty clearly and presented it as reasonable. But then, Lewison goes on. Paul's second objection was more visceral, and sometimes masked by the first. He quickly became jealous of Stu's relationship with John. He felt edged out, rejected, hurt. A fourth player might normally be expected to join a group in fourth position, but Stu came in near the top, perhaps even second, and Paul was pushed down. He'd staked the primary claim to John since the end of 1957, and now slipped down the chart. Before, he would sit next to John on the bus, with George alone in the seat behind. Now, John and Stu sat together, and Paul was in the back with the boy nine or so months younger. So this is also okay. The little thing about George being a disappointing bus seat companion because he was nine months younger... Eh, if Paul was disappointed about not sitting with John anymore, I don't think it was because of George's age. And as far as the words sometimes masked, while not inaccurate, it depends what is meant by sometimes. Like, does that mean on occasion Paul's jealousy added fuel to the fire of his musical criticisms? Or does it mean usually, usually masked? So that's a little up in the air for me. My opinion will need to be reserved until we encounter future writing choices. Yeah, I agree. I don't particularly like the word masked. Mask sounds to me like Paul is hiding behind his musical complaints. Mm. And maybe he doesn't really feel them as much as he pretends to. Yeah, like he actually doesn't really care yeah. about the of the band as much as he pretends if he's trying to say that 
Paul had legitimate complaints and he used those complaints as a shield when he would sometimes lob personal frustrations at Stuart based on their interpersonal friendships that I could get behind because that's going to happen whether you wanted to or not. Exactly. Yes. So I'm fine with that. I don't like the word mask because to me, it sounds duplicitous. But I agree, you can't really make a judgment based on this one opening paragraph here. Yeah. Tune in continues on page 417. John had engineered the situation. It was by his actions that dissent was in the air. But Paul couldn't be angry with him, only with Stu. So it was Stu who got Paul's snippy remarks and general behavior that in one way or another cut the ground from under him. John, as usual, observed it and did nothing. It was for Stu to defend himself if he wanted to. It seems Stu mostly ignored it. Sometimes John even joined in, and Stu ignored that too. John had again chosen someone who stood up to him. Okay, there's a lot to discuss in this paragraph. Let's start at the bottom where Lewison claims Stu is standing up to John. He even goes so far as to assert that John should be given credit for, once again, choosing someone who stood up to him. So Stu ignores John's taunts, but at the same time, he's standing up to him, which isn't to Stu's credit, by the way. It's to John's credit because he chose someone who wouldn't fight back yeah well that's especially interesting because this is exactly how lewison describes the dynamic with tommy moore in the very next chapter on page 463 even more than Stu, however the lenin tongue was directed at tommy moore here was a verbal cruelty that knew no bounds, especially when his target's weakness and the unlikelihood of a physical response had been assessed. So how is Tommy Moore's lack of a physical response different from Stewart's? Or is Tommy also standing up to John by not fighting back? So Lewison is is acknowledging that John's cruelty was in like inverse proportion to a person's ability or willingness to fight back. Yeah. And also that Tommy Moore's lack of fighting back physically was evidence of his weakness. But in Stewart's case, it's evidence that he's standing up to John. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Which is to John's credit again. So he's strong to choose Stuart, who won't fight back, and he's strong to harass Tommy Moore, who also won't fight back. Right. But he also, we've been told multiple times throughout TuneIn, he also respects people who stand up to him. Right. And that's what Stuart is doing by not fighting back. But Tommy is being weak by not fighting back. Okay, let's read the Stuart paragraph one more time. Okay. John had engineered the situation. It was by his actions that dissent was in the air. But Paul couldn't be angry with him, only with Stu. So it was Stu who got Paul's snippy remarks and general behavior that in one way or another cut the ground out from under him. 
John, as usual, observed it and did nothing. It was for Stu to defend himself if he wanted to. It seems Stu mostly ignored it. Sometimes John even joined in, and Stu ignored that, too. John had again chosen someone who stood up to him. That's just very odd. But now let's talk about John engineering the situation that creates dissent. Right. Okay. So according to Tune In, John brings someone into the band who he knows is not musically competent. Right. And he gifts him with certain tokens of his favor, like sitting next to him on the bus. And according to Tune In, has done that on purpose. And then, instead of John finding a way to boost group morale and bring everyone together and reassure everyone, you know, we're all in this together and he's friends with everybody and it's all good, instead he sits back and watches them fight. Yeah, and does nothing. Sits back, lets them fight, lets Paul be the bad guy, lets Paul do the dirty work of criticizing Stu, while meantime their relationship festers. Right, he plays both sides. And this is his leadership style? Right, his benign maneuvering. Although it's kind of hard to argue it's benign in this case. If John purposely engineered this situation, as Tunin suggests, he must have an objective. And for a book that is so preoccupied with leadership, it's strange that this is the extent of its analysis. Regarding Paul having to take the role of the bad guy, Lewison does quote Paul about that very thing on page 616. Tune in reads, Neil Aspinall watched John allow Paul to bully Stu, even though clearly the two were close friends. Paul tilted at Stu in a way that John couldn't argue with, rounding on him for being a crap musician. For God's sake, Stu, will you practice? You're dragging us all down. Neil saw John leaving Stu to fight his own battles. If he wanted to stay in the group, he had to handle it. Survival of the fittest. Paul later realized how he had been cast as the fall guy. That the others left him to voice concerns that at some level or other, they all recognized. Paul said, I felt Stu was holding us back musically. It was the same with Pete Best. There were very practical reasons for my not wanting Stu in the group and everyone else knew them and was fully aware. But I was the man who had to say it. It became my role. And if they, the other Beatles, hadn't wanted it, dot dot dot, all these things were group decisions. I was just the tip of the iceberg with Stu. So, so the good thing about this is that Lewison is confirming that Paul has been cast as the fall guy. So he's he's endorsing this take of Paul's. Yes. I mean, he uses Paul's quote to do it, and he only offers one sentence of support. So pretty perfunctory, but yes, this is an example of TuneIn representing Paul's perspective well and refraining from characterizing him as jealous. But let's talk about the word bully. As we just read, Paul saying to Stuart, for God's sake, will you practice? You're dragging us down, is deemed bullying. That's Lewison's own word choice. 
Lewison also used the word bully earlier when describing the group's collective treatment of Stuart during the Scottish tour. On page 466, Stuart sent a letter back to Gambier Terrace, quote, omitting any mention of how he was being bullied, unquote. The specifics of this bullying is reported on page 463. Little is known of how the troop spent the long offstage hours beyond the fact that they completely got on each other's nerves. George would recall, there weren't enough seats in the van and somebody had to sit on the inside of the mud guard on the back wheel, usually Stu. Tuning continues. The distal desire to be a rock star was put to a severe test during the course of the week when everyone made his life a misery. Paul played a more open hand than usual, sniping away the entire time. And George played a closed hand, literally hitting him. He would say, I had a lot of fist fights with Stuart. It was fighting for your inch then. I suppose the reason I was fighting him was that in the ego pecking order, he wasn't really a musician. Tune in continues. John weighed in too, of course, mouthing off at his best friend and flatmate, the guy who not four months earlier he'd been so desperate to entice into the group. He would say, we were terrible. We'd tell Stu he couldn't sit with us or eat with us. We'd tell him to go away. And he did. That was how he learned to be with us. It was all stupid, but that was what we were like. Tunin continues. In one town, they heard, or imagined they'd heard, that a circus had not long departed and that a dwarf had slept in a particular hotel bed. They insisted Stu sleep in it. No one else would, so it had to be him. Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't even I don't even know what to say. They're just being horrible. They're just being horrible, yeah. Just mean little petty But what's interesting is I wouldn't single Paul out from that description as being the worst to Stuart. Well, exactly. Well, especially if Tunin is correct that John is always in control and leading, surely he would have been the one leading the charge on all this. Sleep in the little bed, Stuart, and you can't go sit away. with us. Wouldn't that mitigate a lot of Paul's jealousy? Yeah. Apparently not. No, we're left to believe that Stuart is still in a position that makes Paul jealous of him. There's not even a paragraph that addresses that in Tune In. Like, maybe John is scared of alienating Paul. Maybe he's treating Stuart like shit to, to communicate to Paul, like, you're still my number one. And then he turns around to Stuart and he's like, Stu, you're still my number one. Mm -hmm. Even though I tore you to shreds in front of Paul. I mean, yeah. Paul, I, I know I let Stu sit next to me next to the bus, but... But now, look, he, I'm making him sit on the mud flap and also not letting him sit with us to eat. I, you know, forgive me for having some kind of empathy for John here, but, like, it is a difficult situation for him, too. He is trapped between his two best friends that he loves and that he wants to keep, but we don't even go there in TuneIn, which is weird. Isn't that weird? 
It's very weird because if you love two people but they hate each other, that's an emotionally fraught situation. Even if you are John Lennon. But no, it's all just Paul is jealous of Stu's friendship with John. That's just such a myopic way to look at this situation, isn't it? I think so. Okay. Plus, here's something that isn't in TuneIn. It's a quote from Bill Harry, reported in Philip Norman's 2016 McCartney biography, so we're not suggesting it should be in TuneIn. Maybe Bill Harry didn't mention this to Lewis in, in his interviews for TuneIn. That's possible. But Bill said... Stoop was very mild and gentle, and John would put him down verbally in a way he never did other people in our circle, especially not Paul. So despite whatever bus seating arrangements are going on, John at some point or another began treating Stuart worse than others in their circle. And he treated Paul better! Yeah. So to me, it sounds like the initial Stu came in near the top and Paul was pushed down situation. Uh, it was maybe something of a honeymoon period for John and Stu. Because the bus seats are on page 417 and then 50 pages later, the Scottish tour starts and Stu's on the mud flap instead. Hmm. So to review, they were all horrible little bitches telling Stu to go away. Uh, not letting him sit with them, etc. And George had a lot of fistfights with Stuart, and John was uniquely verbally cruel to him. And yet, Tunin presents Paul as more of a bully than John or George. Even though John is supposed to be Stu's best friend, Paul's more of a bully. Because he told Stu to practice. <laughs> yeah, I guess. That seems like an odd conclusion. It's interesting also that Neil says John couldn't argue with Paul on the Stu situation because Paul was correct that Stu was not a good musician. But it's still framed afterward as John allowing Paul to bully Stu. Yes. Tudin tells us that John allows this because he believes in survival of the fittest as part of his code of leadership i see john's a darwinist okay i guess so but the thing is i don't understand why that wouldn't apply to paul then because john was famous for saying i can say nasty things about paul if i feel like it but nobody else can mm. huh Yet Paul was allowed to say whatever he wanted about Stu. So I don't know that I agree with the survival of the fittest thing. I think it's probably more complicated than that. Agreed. Returning to Lewis and remarking on page 417 that Paul couldn't be angry with John, only with Stu. We think that's probably a valid speculation. However, he doesn't connect the rest of the dots, which is that the same applies to Stuart. Yes. Stuart can't be angry with John for asking him to join the band in a role he's ill-suited for, for engineering this awful situation, or even for picking on him and criticizing him directly. So Paul 
is just as likely to be the dumping ground for all of Stewart's frustrations as well. Yeah, exactly. And there are several quotes in Tune In that would suggest that Stu did love John so much that he would probably find it hard to be angry with him, or at least to express it. On page 362, Tune In quotes Cynthia as saying, The influence John had over Stuart was very strong, and the urge to communicate with John on every level was important to Stu at that time. On page 412, Tune In reads, John could be relentlessly persuasive, however, and his friendship with Stu had become central to them both. As fellow student Helen Anderson says, Though it was strange that Stuart got diverted away from his painting, he was completely carried away with John. And on page 416, Cynthia is again quoted, saying that, When Stuart first joined the group in Liverpool, he spent every spare moment practicing, hoping for words of praise from John. Hmm. So these are Stuart's feelings for John, according to Cynthia and Helen Anderson. And this is co-signed by Tunin. Tunin endorses this view of the relationship. And yet John often treated Stuart, his best friend, very badly. At least in public. Well, maybe when Stuart first joined, he was sitting with John, and then maybe John noticed that Paul's nose was out of whack about it. So then yeah. he, in reaction, he shifted things around and made sure that Paul knew where he stood. And do you know what I mean? Like John might be mm -hmm. responding to Paul's He might be nose. reacting. Of yes. course. Yeah. So Stu's getting whiplash. He's like, one second, we're best friends. Mm -hmm. And like, you look up yeah. to me and respect me. And the next minute, as soon as yeah. Paul comes in. Exactly. Exactly. What the hell? Yeah. So maybe John's favor ebbed and flowed um, in ways that we'll never be able to <laughs> accurately track down to the date. But, but TuneIn frames Paul as being consistently jealous the whole time. And that his hostility and resentment are one-sided. Yeah, which doesn't make sense when you factor in John's actual behavior. Exactly. I mean, even if John is sometimes super, super nice to Stuart. Yeah, I'm sure he was. Of course, because everybody does describe them as being real close friends. And yet... He treated him like trash sometimes, too, especially in public. So it, it would just make sense for Stuart to resent Paul. Of course. It would be too much to ask that he didn't resent Paul. Right. And later in this episode, we will present evidence that Stuart definitely did resent Paul back. And the fact that John always comes out on top in this tug of war over him doesn't make him a leader. It potentially makes him a skilled manipulator. That's not the same thing. If you buy into Lewison's theory that, that John engineered it all, maybe you don't. True. But either way, whether John is purposefully sowing discontent for his own gain or just avoiding the Paul Stew problem because he loves them both and is afraid to alienate either one of them, mm -hmm. I would argue that that behavior is not reflective of great leadership. 
not at all. I mean, personally, I don't necessarily think this is purposeful on John's part or conscious. Like, I think it's probably just learned behavior from his upbringing. And an outgrowth of his insecurity. Right. I believe he's probably just doing whatever he feels will keep both Paul and Stuart close to him. Like, I think that is his goal. And he's just going instinctively on whatever he thinks is going to get that accomplished. And he's willing to be mean to people, if you know, to keep them close. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But on the other hand, he did say in the Get Back tapes that he knew he was conniving since Dovedale. <laughs> <laughs> so your mileage may vary. I mean, Lewis yeah, yeah. could make a case that John is masterminding the whole situation i guess totally he also said in lennon remembers that the point of life was to maneuver and get situations the way you want them (laughs) yeah so (laughs) so whatever the ratio of you know young man trying to be loved versus you know skilled manipulator is is kind of subjective absolutely yes kind of a judgment call but you know everybody close to john also says he could be very soft and squishy and vulnerable and that makes you not get mad at a person either right yeah exactly and we're not saying that was insincere on john's part but at the same time i'm sure that he learned from experience that being that way helped people to forgive him of course well i mean even a toddler learns to smile and turn on the charm when they're in trouble exactly and we don't expect lewison to have made every single point that we just made sure but i wish there was just a little more analysis of what is going on here inside john that makes this dynamic keep happening over and over again in his life it it must mean something that john was exceptionally cruel and insensitive to the people he loved most and then usually they would forgive him for it. I just wish, I just wish there was something beyond, well, this is what happens when you have an amazing and beloved leader. Because, no. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even if you don't issue a verdict on what it means for his personal character and all that stuff, like, you don't even have to make a judgment about that. But if it's a clear pattern in John's life that happens repeatedly and impacts the dynamic of the Beatles, then I absolutely think we need to identify it. Yeah. And dig in a little bit more. A little bit more. Well, and Lewiston is also certainly not shy about telling us that Paul is jealous every few pages. Mm, Yeah. And he is very bold about attributing specific behaviors to that jealousy. Even though, as far as I know, no one who was there has ever drawn those same direct links Mm -hmm. paul of course admitted he was jealous but did he ever say his criticisms of Stu's playing were masks for that jealousy or that the jealousy was more of a problem than his musical concerns so in anthology paul said that his conflicts with stewart were partly out of jealousy for john's friendship We all rather competed for John's friendship and Stuart being his mate from art school had a lot of his time and we were jealous of that. Also, I was keen to see the group 
be as good as it could be. So I would make the odd remark, oh, you didn't play that right. So Lewison is speculating that Paul's jealousy caused some of his musical criticisms. Okay, well, Paul said two things. One, I was jealous of John's friendship uh, with Stuart. And number two, I was keen to see the group be as good as it could be. And so I would criticize him. He certainly doesn't say I criticize Stuart's bass playing because I was jealous of his friendship with John. Right. Yeah, so that is speculation. And far be it from us to take anyone to task for offering speculation. We're just saying... So if he can repeatedly comment on Paul's internal feelings and motivations, then I think he's within his rights to similarly speculate on John's motivations. Absolutely. Okay, let's turn to George for a bit. Right, from page 416. When George joined John's group, two years earlier, he'd objected to its surplus members, but he had no problems with Stu's presence, despite his lack of ability. George just wanted the group to get off the ground, saying later, it was better to have a bass player who couldn't play than to not have a bass player at all. And George had liked Stu from the start. Okay, so we've noted that George didn't object to Stu being in the band, and that he got along with Stu from the start. Mm -hmm. But then, on page 463, let's read it again. I had a lot of fistfights with Stuart. It was fighting for your inch then. I suppose the reason I was fighting him was that, in the ego pecking order, he wasn't really a musician. Okay, so George liked Stu from the start, but a few months later, he's having... A lot of fistfights with Stuarts. Right. Fighting for his place in the ego pecking order. And he calls Stuart not really a musician. Okay. Well, first of all, maybe that was similar to the situation with Paul. Maybe he got the, like, maybe he got the, he got the front seat. And then Paul was like, oh, hell no. And George was like, oh, hell no. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm not sitting on the mud flap. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not coming in behind Stuart. That ain't happening. Yeah. So what I'm saying is maybe it's possible if they get along fine and it's not personal. But a few months later, George is like punching him out to tell him to get to the back of the line. Well, and or perhaps he's just taking his cue from John and Paul and piling on someone he personally doesn't really have a problem with, but he's just following the crowd. That is a thing about men and boys in groups, you know, like sometimes they they can behave that way just because it's the thing to do. And it's and it literally is not personal. Right. Which is not better. It's weird to, it's, I think it's weird to women because we don't have fistfights with people we have no beef with. Like, that's just yeah. not a thing that we do. Right. But guys can actually do that, can just like have fights and then just be like, build a personal man, boop, and like pound it out. <laughs> I don't know how they do that. It's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. But, um, 
I mean, not the part that they fight isn't cool. I'm just saying that they can resolve things so quickly is cool. <laughs> so maybe it was just like that with George. Maybe he's like, nothing personal, Stu, but you're sitting in the fucking mud flap, bro. Yeah. It ain't gonna yeah. be me, buddy. Yeah. But again, I that's framed as there's nothing wrong with that. That's normal, right. acceptable behavior. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Unlike being jealous. Yeah. Paul having hurt feelings is framed as, you know, irrational, inappropriate. Embarrassing. Embarrassing yeah. to him and to everybody and, you know, something he needs to be shamed for. Yeah. And which is a serious character flaw. I don't appreciate that. Like, I feel like no. we need to be more adult about this. Yeah. To a certain extent, I understand, like, representing the the mainstream mentality of the mm. era. Yes. I get that. Yes. I understand yeah. that. But again, you're writing from an adult's perspective 60 years later. Yeah. And you're not writing for a child in the late 50s so why are we doing this but apart from all that the most striking thing about this packing order quote is remember when lewison opined on page 418 that Stu came in near the top perhaps even second and paul was pushed down i do well this account from george would seem to dispute that don't you think I mean, pretty explicitly. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to get technical about there being a pecking order, which I guess is important, then yeah. Yeah, George is saying here that he was willing to fight to defend his spot, which puts Stu below George. And there is no argument to even be made that Stuart was co-leader of the band. No one has ever said that. No. Not never. once. In fact, here's a relevant quote from Johnny Gentle from Bob Spitz's book. Johnny said, it was always Lennon and McCartney, even then. Lennon and McCartney. They wouldn't even look at George or Stu to determine where things were going. Everything was designed around the two of them, and the others had to catch up on their own. Wow. And... As we mentioned in Leader Lenin, Alan Williams said in 2005 that in Hamburg, quote, Paul was beginning to challenge John for leadership of the group, unquote. So if anything, Paul was battling John for first position, not battling Stuart for second. I mean, it makes me wonder, is, is Mr. Lewison not aware of these inconsistencies? I mean, if he thinks that Stuart is number two in the band yeah that Stuart has more pull and sway and power over what they do and how they do it on stage than paul does what in the world is that even based on like literally nothing, nothing. that the bandmates say <laughs> no one has said that no well maybe i mean maybe he just means that Stuart is closer to john that's the pecking order who is john's best of the besties okay well this is what he wrote a fourth player might normally be expected to join a group in fourth position but Stu came in near the top perhaps even second and paul was pushed down 
so he didn't say in terms of John's ladder of bestieship. He said, right. join the group in fourth position. Mm -hmm. Well, if he meant closeness to John, then if Stuart is the highest, he would be first because John doesn't get to be the first well, in closeness to himself. Yes, it makes no sense that John is John's best friend. Yeah, if there's evidence for Stuart having more control and more power musically in the band than Paul did while they're touring and performing, I would need to see evidence for that. I, I would like to see anything that even hints at that. George just called him not really a musician. <laughs> uh, said he fought him with his fist to remind him that he's beneath George. So what are we even talking about? How is Stuart coming in near the top? Just under John, perhaps even second. Right. In what way is that the case? I don't know how you come to that conclusion. And I don't know what the point of writing that was. Or what the point was of choosing to phrase it as Paul had slipped down the charts. All right. On page 498, about the Beatles, uh, after Tommy Moore has left the band and Paul reluctantly took over the drums, temporarily, Tune In reads, As much as Paul liked exhibiting versatility, he was unhappy. He felt he'd been lumbered, that his multi-instrumental ability was tying him down. Who looked at the drummer? By rights, his place was out front, especially with his new guitar. Here he was, paying off the solid seven at ten bob a week, and hardly getting to play it. Okay. Sounds almost like we're sympathizing with Paul here. But then he writes, his place was out front, especially with his new guitar, which he was paying off at ten bob a week. Yeah, Andy's upset because nobody looks at the drummer. So mm. Paul is unhappy about being conscripted as drummer because he's money conscious and attention hungry. Okay. Yeah, I don't think the new guitar has much to do with it. I think this is more about Paul wanting to do what he does best. Yes. I mean, does Paul belong on the drums? Nobody, including Paul, wants him to be the permanent drummer. He's filled in on every instrument because he can. Right. But he knows that a real drummer is going to be a better drummer. And then writing, he felt he'd been lumbered. I mean, you could have said that more empathetically. Like, ironically, Paul's multi-instrumental ability meant that he was often put in positions that he did not desire. But he pitched in for the sake of teamwork. Okay, let's finish the rest of the paragraph and see where it goes. Maybe. Yeah, maybe it gets better. Continuing on, jealousy of Stu was stoked. Paul was in the back line while Stu remained out front, even if he was hiding and in dark glasses. One thing was for certain. 
Paul wasn't going to abandon singing. He said, I was drumming with my hands, playing the hi-hat and bass drum with my feet, and I had a broomstick stuck between my thighs on the end of which was a little microphone, and I'm seeing, tell me what I'd say. It wasn't easy. <laughs> okay, so this is a fantastic image. Yeah, right? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh my lord one thing was for certain paul wasn't going to abandon singing uh, is should he well right what happens if he stops they lose half their repertoire that would be bad for everybody and also being stuck in the back while Stuart is out front Stuart, who doesn't sing and cannot play his bass very well there's no need to refer to that as jealousy. Why can't you call that indignation? Right, or even resentment. Or even outrage. How about this? The situation was made even more frustrating by the fact that the musical novice, Stuart, remained out in front. while the founding member and lead singer, McCartney, was relegated to the back of the stage. Well, and even more importantly, I think, like, this is making his job as lead singer really, really hard. Yes. I'm sure he's not performing to his best. Yeah. By having to drum with a broomstick mic clutched between his knees. Yeah. And that's frustrating for a performer to be hobbled like that. And then... Was it even necessary to tie Stewart into it? I mean, I guess if you wanted to say that the situation fueled Paul's resentment towards Stewart because that's just kind of a logical assumption, I guess go for it. But you can do it in a way that doesn't imply that Paul is being irrational and immature. Jealousy is an inflammatory and judgmental word to choose repeatedly which Lewison does because jealousy is not a neutral word to describe dissatisfaction jealousy is a sin mm -hmm. it is a flaw it's a very hot button word so to use it once or even twice makes the point sufficiently to use it over and over and over again about the same situation to me is excessive and after a while starts to feel like this is deliberate messaging generally speaking when a person is in an objectively unfair situation through no fault of their own you would not select the word jealous to characterize them even if they are disgruntled. So I think that's inappropriately judgmental. Well, and I just find it odd that Tunin doesn't take any time to give Paul credit for taking one for the team. Mm -hmm. Even though he doesn't want to, clearly. He's still doing it. Yeah. And he's managing to sing lead while drumming. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, if you're chronicling the rise of the Beatles, then yeah, I would think that that would be relevant. More be, relevant it, than casting aspersions on his inner thoughts. 
our next example of Paul's jealousy is a pretty far out theory about Paul's reasons for concentrating more on the band than on his schooling. From pages 424 and 425, Paul McCartney was now in the decisive phase of his 13-year schooling, and all was far from well. He was sitting his A-levels in June, and yet, despite his talent for art, enough to win the school prize the previous term, he was losing focus. His English literature remained on track, thanks to Dusty Durband. But Paul's attitude had shifted again. Distractions beyond the school wall weren't helping. There was Dot's pregnancy, and there was Stu. As Stu's rival for John's attention, putting his school days entirely behind him seemed pretty appealing to Paul. He somehow failed to notice that it was necessary to apply now for a course at university or teacher training college to begin in September. His contemporaries were doing it and discussing it, but Paul would claim not to have realized. Wow. So there's a lot here, uh, but to stay on topic for this episode, Paul loses focus on his academic career because of Stu? because of rivalry with Stu for John's attention. Uh, did Paul ever say anything to draw that connection? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. uh, and if he did not, that is the most dismissive backhanded framing I can imagine for explaining why a world-class artist chose to turn their focus away from traditional schooling where they were doing well and had a bright future, by the way, and instead devote themselves to their art. Rivalry with Stuart is why Paul decided to focus on becoming a musician. I find that outrageous, actually. Like, who who do people think <laughs> Paul McCartney is? I People think that he just lucked into a career, I guess. What is happening? I don't... What? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's a really big conversation. Uh, yeah. But like I said... We're uh, going to try to stay on topic here. Well, the idea that Paul is just barely holding on to John's attention at this point is nutballs. Yeah. <laughs> Lewison floated this framing in the prologue, too. Paul had been invited in and wasn't going to let it slip. And remember, he could be sharp, sure, and impressive enough to hold John's attention while yeah. they're... <laughs> co-writing songs and leading a band together yeah and having eyeball conversations yeah he's he's managing to hang on to that attention this is a problem that pervades the book in its framing of the john Stu paul triangle because it's always put in terms of attention and paul was not desperate for attention scraps he was and wanted to remain john's best friend and partner he wanted to have the most of John's love and regard. Introduce that to attention is disrespectful to Paul and to John. Yeah, you're right. I mean, attention is what you say about a child. Put down the newspaper, daddy. Yes. That is not what's happening here.
All right, first trip to Hamburg. Page 521. It was particularly grim for Paul. As usual, in first-come, first-served Beatles situations, John had the broadest shoulders and sharpest elbows. The leader bagged the best bed in the marginally better room, followed swiftly by Stu and George, continuing their Gambier arrangement. So by the time Paul got in, and he may have been only seconds behind, he and Pete had to go into the second room. It was a triple blow for Paul. He was in a dump, he had the wretched feeling of being left out of the fun, and he was lumbered with the new boy, Quiet Pete, never unfriendly or unpleasant, but monosyllabically shy. It was massively irksome and the cause of a prolonged jealousy here in Hamburg, often expressed, to the irritation of others, but never resolved. So this, on its own, is totally fine. Like, on its face, there's nothing objectionable here. Because this is a pretty, pretty neutral description. I think most people have the empathy to read this and say, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds like it does suck. It does sting when you're cut out from the main fun. If this were one of three mentions of Paul's jealousy, you know, like it, <laughs> if it weren't a deluge. And that's my objection to it. Again, he uses the word jealousy, which is just gratuitous at this point. A prolonged jealousy here in Hamburg. Paul spends the entire duration of his time in Hamburg in a state of jealousy. And then he adds, yeah. often expressed to the irritation of others. Would it possibly be more appropriate to call the others unsympathetic instead of calling Paul irritating? I mean, I get that TuneIn is trying to represent the other's point of view. And I agree that hearing someone bitch all the time can be annoying. But no one actually called Paul irritating. I mean, as far as we know, TuneIn doesn't provide a quote. So if that's Lewison's word choice, that seems mean-spirited. Maybe you should just make the point that, to make matters worse, Paul had no one to vent to. That way, you're making the same point, but we're seeing it from Paul's point of view. Right, because this is in part a biography of Paul. Instead, we get the word jealousy again which characterizes Paul's feelings as irrational. When, in fact, you've just laid out the very reasonable causes of Paul's dissatisfaction. From page 634. Beyond Stu's usual problem in the group, that is, Paul's jealousy and the associated moans about musical crappiness, Stuart's main concern was that he was still suffering from his grumbling appendix and persistent headaches. Okay, so Paul is jealous. Again, we need reminding about that. Even though the main point of this paragraph is to tell us about uh, his headaches. health problems. Yeah. yeah. It's important to wedge Paul's jealousy in that paragraph. Yeah, I feel like in moments like these, a thesaurus would come in really handy. Mm. How about instead of that word yet again what about his personality clashes with paul or his conflicts with paul or even paul's criticisms mm -hmm. 
Could any of those have done the job? Do we really need to hear yet again that Paul is jealous? And not just that he's jealous, but his criticisms are moans. So Lewison is once again telling the readers that Paul's complaints are illegitimate. And also, by calling the moans associated with Paul's jealousy, he's telling us they're illegitimate because they're basically jealousy disguised as musical criticisms. Mm. Even though that's not the case with any of the other members of the band who complain about Stewart's musicianship. Paul is the only band member for whom this is a front for jealousy. Yes, a mask. That was the word initially used in one of the first passages that we read. And at the time, it seemed fairly innocuous, but, you know, apparently it was setting up this idea that Paul's jealousy was his primary problem with Stuart and that his musical criticisms were merely associated with that jealousy. Would be a much easier case to make if Paul suddenly stopped caring about the quality of the band as soon as Stu left. Yeah, or if this had been the first time or the last time (laughs) (laughs) that Paul had ever been critical or perfectionistic with his bandmates. That's a great point. Paul McCartney is the absolute last person on earth whose complaints about musical quality should be assumed to be about something other than musical quality. So once again, he's undermined the legitimacy of Paul's complaints, even though those complaints are legitimized by Neil, George Harrison, John Lennon. (laughs) Yeah, Astrid. Most eloquently, probably by Astrid. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul McCartney himself as we read earlier, also corroborates that he was jealous of Stuart's friendship with John. That is true. But those things can coexist. And one doesn't invalidate the other. Right. So on page 551 of Tune In, in a letter to his ex-girlfriend, Susan Williams, Towards the end of October 1960, Stuart writes, I have definitely decided to pack the band in at the beginning of January. My curiosity is quenched, as far as rock and roll is concerned anyway. Just recently, I have found the most delightful friends in three young artists here, one girl and two boys. What intrigues me, however, is the fact that they found me and not I them. Looking like typical bohemians in real suede jackets and jeans, they wandered into the club about a week ago. They asked me why I was playing in a rock and roll band, as I obviously wasn't the type. Here was I, feeling the most insipid-looking member of the group, being told how much superior I looked. This alongside the great Romeo John Lennon and his two stalwarts, Paul and George, the Casanovas of Hamburg. A little intoxicated with their praise, I was enticed into showing them some drawings I had done while here. The girl thought I was the most handsome of the lot and begged me to allow her to photograph me, which she did today. How ashamed I felt of the pleasure I experienced, of the contempt I felt for my dashing companions of rock. They, who at my side 
had commented unanimously on her unique beauty, while I, smugly content, knew of her contempt for them. It's somehow like a dream, which I'm participating. So, having read that, I think it's 100% fair. Well, I think it's important to note that Stuart is expressing very negative feelings toward Paul and George and John. I mean, we've got contempt, we've got feeling superior and smug, yeah. and how he was feeling down on himself, but then when the Eggsies came and complimented him, it made him contemptuous of the others. You know, the the crack about them being the Casanovas of Hamburg, <laughs> that's jealousy. Yeah. Which I don't blame him for. We just read about how awful they could be to him. Well, yeah. Yeah, we are not defending John Paul and oh, Lord, George. No. No, we're just saying, you know, there's something of a two-way street going on here. Like, of course he, he of course he's resentful towards them. Of you course. You cracked me here. You took yeah. me to Hamburg. Yeah. Why are yeah. you being jerks to me? And I also think, having just read that letter, that we should also consider the possibility that maybe Paul and Stewart didn't get along because they just didn't like each other. Like, it's never ever postulated that paul just didn't like stewart thought he was like a pretentious blowhard when i think mm -hmm. that's at least possible consideration <laughs> yes paul might not have said that but paul doesn't usually say things like that about people no he doesn't no i think the line of reasoning is well Everybody else says such nice things about Stuart, so it must be impossible for anyone to legitimately dislike him. But that's just not realistic. No person is liked by 100% of everyone <laughs> they meet. And I don't love saying this, but when a young person at the tender, tender age of 21 dies unexpectedly, especially if he had a bright future and was a brilliant painter people are going to tend to remember him with rose-colored glasses of course that is fair and fine but it is never ever ever factored into the narrative of tune in well and the quotes we have about him aren't just from people chatting casually about an acquaintance they're from people put in the position of eulogizing him to the world on the record yeah. to be quoted under their real name in history books so that affects how you talk about someone it just does mm -hmm. of course it does you're gonna put but more thought into it you're gonna err on the side of being very generous and that's normal yes and you're also going to consciously or unconsciously you're you're going to present yourself as being capable of seeing spotting yes. that spark yes. of brilliance at the time you yes. know which yes. maybe you did maybe you didn't <laughs> yeah exactly i'm not disputing that stewart was well liked but it would have been valid for paul to dislike him or even partially dislike him and vice versa of course if you compare the letters that Stuart writes to the letters that Paul writes, 
you will see a stark contrast. Yeah, of personalities. Personalities, styles, you know, a folksiness as compared to a pretentiousness. There is no right or wrong to that. One isn't better than the other. It's not morally superior to be folksy as opposed to being pretentious. I'm just saying. Definitely a streak of insufferability there. Yes. Yeah. Which, far be it from, I mean, for God's sake, I'm a Beatle fan. Like, they're <laughs> all insufferable. Yeah. Very true. Well, and also, if I died at 21, I would oh. not want my letters published. Good yeah, right. Lord. You want to talk about insufferable? <laughs> <laughs> Phoebe, were you a pretentious youth? Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> another excerpt from one of Stu's letters uh, describing his solo spot singing Love Me Tender he wrote Everybody says I sing it better than Elvis Just before I sing I receive the best applause of the night Minutes after I finish singing the people all look at me with sad eyes and sad looks on their faces Recently I've become very popular both with girls and homosexuals who tell me I'm the sweetest, most beautiful boy. Also, it appears that people refer to me as the James Dean of Hamburg. Um, okay, so this must have been when Stuart was feeling himself. Yeah, obviously, sure. Which everyone's entitled to. Absolutely. <laughs> Does Lewison roast Stuart for thinking he sings better than Elvis? Oh, well, this isn't in tune in. Oh, okay. Everyone says I sing better than Elvis. Listen, I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you, everyone else says that. And I'm not saying you have to address me as the James Dean of Hamburg. I'm just saying that when I enter Germany, that's what people say. So get used to it i do like how stewart just reports matter-of-factly that he's become very popular with homosexuals <laughs> without going all no homo or saying something obnoxious about it that's that's nice from page 553 it was all too much and paul continued to let everyone know it in a letter to rod murray sent toward the end of october stewart detailed in black and white the stark truth of the matter saying, funnily enough, Paul has turned out the real black sheep of the trip. Everyone hates him, and I only feel sorry for him. Okay, well, first of all, that line to me is the best evidence of the mutual dislike and hostility between Stuart and Paul. Well, because everyone didn't hate Paul. And saying, I only feel sorry for him, is clearly disingenuous. There's no reason for him to exaggerate by saying that everyone hates Paul, unless he hates Paul and wants his friend to think everyone does. Of like, course. That's, that's obvious. I do think it should be quoted because it does shed light on Stuart and Paul's relationship. But Stuart writing that, taking the time to complain about Paul in his letters, shows that... 
Paul is really under his skin and he actively dislikes Paul. So yeah, I do think it's good to include it. However, to call it the stark truth of the matter is outrageous. Outrageous and it's irresponsible. As a historian, you can't write that. There's no proof of it. That's an extremely bold and inflammatory claim. You cannot write that the truth is that everybody hated Paul unless you can substantiate that, and you can't. Correct. We have copious proof that the other Beatles loved Paul until the day everybody dies. The Beatles loved each other. We know that. So to call Stewart's comment that everyone hates Paul the stark truth of the matter is very ill-considered. It's unprovable, to say the least. And it's also incredibly mean-spirited. Well, and an irresponsible thing to say about, again, one of the four main figures in your book if you want to report that and say clearly this is hyperbole but paul was getting on john and george's nerves at this time that's fine if you can find quotes to support that but to say it's the stark black and white truth that everyone hated him it's just really not okay you can't just endorse that wholesale Well, and why would you want to? Why would you want to? Exactly. To be clear, I don't think you need to go hard on Stuart for writing that. He doesn't like Paul, and that's fine. Of course. He is a young man, and he's having a tough time in Hamburg, too. He sounded like he was feeling pretty miserable in that letter he wrote about how he was feeling like the most insipid-looking member of the band and feeling down on himself and jealous of the other guys. He got talked into spending his money on a base that he doesn't really care about. <laughs> yes. And, and now that's... he's getting picked on for not being yes. good at it. And he doesn't want to play it. And and he's writing home to a personal friend. And he's, he's lashing out at the dude yes. who he's having problems with. That is fine. That is all fine. That is normal and human. Uh, 100%. The whole band is giving him grief. Paul's in his mug all the time. I'm sure that that's not fun. So yes, it's fine for him to take out his aggression towards Paul in a letter back home. But taking all that into account, why would you present his nasty snide comments as if he's an unbiased observer? Like he's a therapist looking in on this situation. Because <laughs> he, no, he has no personal stake. Yeah, exactly. Well, and by writing that, Lewison is also saying that clearly Stewart's also telling the star truth when he says that he feels sorry for Paul. There's no evidence that Stewart would have or should have felt sorry for Paul. Right, I right. Feel, I feel so sorry for this poor hated black sheep that I'm writing this letter to let you know <laughs> how much she's hated. Please. Uh, no. That's funny. I wonder if Lewison thinks Stuart was also telling the stark truth of the matter when he said, everybody says, I sing better than Elvis. Or maybe Lewison would recognize that as hyperbole. All right, 
The next passage we're going to read is long. We'll pause a couple times to unpack it as we go. It is from page 552, immediately preceding Stu's black sheep letter. When John wasn't calling Astrid Klaus and Jürgen the Krauts, he named them Stuart's angel friends, and Paul was more jealous of Stu than ever. Astrid was artistic, attractive, cultured, and intellectual from a wealthy middle-class Hamburg family. She even had her own car. The relationship, as Paul expressed it from his personal perspective, quote, peeved the rest of us like mad that she hadn't fallen in love with any of us. And it was something none of us had ever seen before. None of our parents had that sort of relationship. It was a wild scene to us. Unquote. Tune continues. While the Hamburg trip was laced with memorable and fun moments, the personal truth for Paul was that little had gone right for him. George and Stu were still in with John at the Bambi, and he wasn't. He had to share a room with a bloke who hardly spoke, but got all the best-looking birds. His guitar was failing him on stage, and now Stu had fallen into the kind of relationship he envied. Worse, because he hated Stu, it was inevitable that Stu's three new friends would take against him, or at least be less comfortable with him than with the others. So Paul himself says that he was peeved Astrid fell in love with Stu and not him, so I don't mind Tunin's usage of jealous and envied about this particular situation. Yeah. Um, the problem, though, is that Reading this quote, I imagine Paul saying this like pretty lightly, because he's always pretty happy to roast his teenage self. Um, but in Tune In, that does not come across at all, because Paul has already been called jealous or envious seven times in this book. So instead, it now feels sinister. Mm -hmm. Also, Lewison calls Paul more jealous than ever of Stu presumably for his new relationship with astrid and also writes that he envied their relationship <laughs> so he manages to use both derogatory words to make the same point twice on one page that's something also he not so subtly and for the second time implies that paul is jealous of pete's love life although he gives no source for that and later on page 994 quotes both john and paul directly disputing that claim yeah i i noticed that too i i don't know maybe pete is the source for paul for... being jealous of him of of him yeah well if that's the case he should be quoted directly yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't know but here's the first time we hear that Paul is jealous of Pete on page 536. Most of the time, the Beatles got on well. Though full of drink and exhaustion, they could rap on any subject under the sun. Paul's care with money was noted. Pete says that while they all passed their ciggies around, Paul would sneak one of his own to himself. And Paul was still needling everyone about the Bambi sleeping arrangements, made all the worse now because he was jealous of Pete getting the best girls. 
George had to process more reminders about being nine months younger, and Paul still couldn't stand Stuart. He hated him, John said. Still, Paul wasn't the only one to pick on Stu. Attacked much of the time in Scotland by all of them, it continued here in Hamburg. John still taunted and belittled his great friend, and all of them had a fair old crack at Pete. <laughs> okay, so once again, there is a lot there. Uh, obviously, Paul is presented as the uh, greatest exception to the basic premise that all the Beatles got on well most of the time. John's taunting of his great friend Stuart is barely an afterthought to all of Paul's transgressions. Mm, okay. So we've noted once again Paul's care with money. Well, I like that Lewison sidestepped calling him cheap or parsimonious or whatever. So Paul is the brokest bitch of the Beatles? Okay. Yes, yes definitely. I mean... Okay. What is the source for Paul's jealousy of Pete getting the quote best girls, whatever that means, which uh, I don't want to explore what that means. <laughs> uh, well, there is there is no source provided for that. Oh, okay, but we're just gonna write it. <laughs> just gonna <laughs> just gonna write it though, because we love using that word jealous. I mean, I, I suppose. Okay. Tune in continues. Paul has ruefully conceded how, for Astrid, Klaus, and Jürgen, quote, John was number two, which is understandable. George was number three, which was a little bit miffing, because I had expected at least to get third. I came fourth just before Pete Best, unquote. Lewison goes on, it wasn't even this. Astrid says, in order, I liked Stuart, John, George, Pete, and Paul. I liked Pete, but he was so very, very shy that you tended to forget about him. He was on his own, really. Paul was so quote-unquote nice, you couldn't get close. He was like a diplomat. Everything had to be nice and calm. I never had a close relationship with Paul like I had with John and George. So Astrid's quote is from a 2006 interview with Lewison that he uses throughout the book, which would mean the air quotes around nice are also Lewison's. In any case, uh, there's nothing bad about how Astrid talks about Paul here. It's certainly not hateful, mm -mm. not even hostile. And Astrid's testimony in 1967 to Hunter Davies is consistent with this. Astrid admits she wasn't close to Paul, but she also adds a bit of self-reflection. Here's the full quote from Davies. Astrid in Germany was always a bit suspicious of Paul at first, though his relationship with Stu was also bound up in this. Says Astrid, it used to frighten me that someone could be so nice all the time, which is silly. It's ridiculous to feel at home with nasty people just because you feel that at least you know where you are with them. It's silly to be wary of nice people. Why would you not include her recollections from 1967? Well, I guess one could argue that those 1967 quotes fall outside the timeline. Like she, she's talking about 1967 
she's describing a realization that she hadn't come to yet at the time of Covered in Tunin. Well, the vast majority of everybody's recollections in Tunin are way after the fact. So, no. Right. No. Yeah, yeah. And there's plenty of kind of looking back and saying, oh, I, I behaved or I thought this way because... Of course. So yeah, I, I don't think there's any reason not to include it. I really don't like the sentence. Worse, because Paul hated Stu, it was inevitable that Stu's three new friends would take against him. When you could just as easily say, because Stu hated Paul, it was inevitable that Stu's three new friends would take against him. Mm -hmm. Why is it framed as, as Paul's fault? There's nothing to support that Stu and Paul not getting along was a one-way problem on Paul's part. Is there any evidence that Stu actually really liked Paul and wanted to be his friend and understood mm. that, that it was awkward how he was coming between John and Paul and went out of his way to include Paul in things? Went to bat with the exes on his behalf. <laughs> <laughs> no. No one would expect that of him. Nobody would expect it. I'm just saying, like, it was a mutual dislike. Also, since Lewison but presumably, you know, procured this Beatles ranking from Astrid. Once he had the quote from her, there was no need to include Paul's quote and then go, actually, it was way worse than that. I mean, the only point in doing that is to embarrass Paul, make him look yeah. like a buffoon. Right. Well, and the the other small problem that that creates is that You've just told us that Paul thinks this is what Astrid and Klaus and Jürgen thought. And then when you say it wasn't even this, here's what Astrid says. Okay, so Paul came last for Astrid. We don't know that that's true of Jürgen and Klaus, but that is what you have now insinuated to the reader. Well, and elsewhere in the book... When John and Paul are visiting Jürgen in Paris and he cuts their hair, Lewison specifically says that Jürgen cut Paul's first because he was more comfortable with Paul. For whatever that's worth. So maybe Paul was right if he was thinking about Jürgen. Maybe he is next to last or better in Jürgen's estimation. The exes are not a hive mind. I mean, I don't think Jürgen has ever said or done anything to make us think that he felt any kind of way about Paul, do you? Nope. Then leave him out of it then. Say Astrid and Klaus. Well, exactly. And maybe that sounds like a, a nitpick that we're pulling Jürgen out of the crowd, but the, I'm nitpicking it because Lewison specifically makes a big deal out of yeah. putting Paul DFL. Well, and to me, maybe Astrid volunteered it this way. But to me, it sounds like she's answering a direct question. Yes. Please rank the Beatles in order of your preference. It, it could read like Astrid was like... It's important for you to know, Mr. Lewison. Yeah, exactly. Like she went yeah. out of her way to correct that record. By the way, make sure in your book that you write <laughs> that Paul is wrong about this. He was my least favorite. Mm-hmm. Here's a mature, objective perspective from Astrid in 1994. She said, Paul had every right to moan about Stuart. Stuart really wasn't interested in the band, and he never practiced the guitar. 
Paul at 18 was a perfectionist. He just wanted the band to be great. But there was this Stuart bloke just standing there looking good, looking very, very cool. And that was good enough for John, but it wasn't good enough for Paul. Why is that quote not in tune in? I don't know. It's a great question. Does Tunin not want us to empathize with Paul? Well, this quote exonerates Paul on so many levels. Because if this is what Astrid is saying, Stuart was the love of her life. So for her to say this, that Paul had every right to moan about him, that takes enormous heat off of Paul because it doesn't seem like she's mad about it. Doesn't seem like she feels Paul hurt her sweetheart. And if anyone would have the right to be mad about it, it would be her. Like, her yeah. loyalties are with Stuart, and they should be, and of course they are. But this also makes it clear that it was not a case of Stuart just, unfortunately, not being a natural musician. Astrid said that he never practiced. Mm -hmm. And listeners, you may remember that earlier we read a quote from Cynthia that said that Stu did practice a lot, but apparently that was short-lived, because according to Astrid, by the time he met her, he never practiced. Well, and as we shared earlier, he wrote a letter to his friend in October 1960, saying his curiosity had been satisfied, and he planned to quit the band at the beginning of the new year. And yet he hung on for six more months, during which he was phoning it in. Yeah, yeah sounds like it. Which, of course, that drove Paul insane. Of course, that bothered him. Well, and again, this this quote from Astrid is not damning or even hostile. No. Or even critical. He was so nice, you couldn't get close. He was like a diplomat. Everything had to be nice and calm. Okay. So he was dodging landmines? Yeah, made a lot of small talk, perhaps. Okay. Fair enough. I can absolutely see why it's hard to get to know somebody that way. You're not really going to be great friends with somebody who's always tense around you. Yeah, if that's the worst thing Astrid has to say about him, that he was reserved and overly polite in this tense and awkward situation, then that's pretty good, actually. All right. So in May 1961, there was a violent incident between Stuart and John. According to Stuart, as told to his sister Pauline. Pauline Sutcliffe wrote about this in her 2002 book, The Beatles' Shadow, Stuart Sutcliffe and His Lonely Hearts Club. Pauline writes, Stuart also told me about the fight with john he was not more precise in detail about the time and place other than it was in may 1961 and in the street near the top 10. john was complaining to him about what paul and george had been saying stewart looked miserable on stage if he turned up and he would walk off stage to talk to astrid Stuart was never going to get any better on base, for he wasn't trying. 
Pauline writes, by this point, May 1961, Stewart had made the decision to leave the band when their residency was finished in July and stay behind in Hamburg with Astrid. Pauline also writes that Stewart was deserting John and also suggests that John envied that Stu had the option to return to school. So maybe those are her best guesses as to what triggered John. But for whatever reason, John attacked Stuart without provocation. Pauline writes, John and Stuart were talking in the street in Hamburg, and suddenly Stuart was lying on the pavement, having been punched by John. He had no time to even attempt to protect himself. The brakes weren't working for John, and he was taken over by one of his uncontrollable rages. He kicked out at Stuart again and again and kicked him in the head. There was blood streaming down from Stuart's head when John finally came to his senses. John looked down at Stuart and fled, disgusted and terrified by his attack. He could not confront what he had done. Paul McCartney was with them when the fight began, but could do nothing to stop the instant insane burst of violence. Paul helped Stuart, who was bleeding from his face and ear, and took him back to their rooms. John wasn't there, but turned up later. John never talked to Stuart about it. John rarely went back to pick up the pieces, resulting from his dreadful behavior. Again, Pauline claims this was told to her by Stuart. It involves three people, two of whom are now dead. The only living person who could corroborate this story is Paul McCartney. So if it was fabricated by Pauline or Stuart, it makes no sense whatsoever to implicate Paul. Well, right. Why would you give someone the power to deny your story? Like if you're making something up and trying to fool people, you'd say that it was just John and Stuart. There were no witnesses. Right. Well, it would also make no sense to cast Paul in the sympathetic role, helping Stu off the ground and back to his room. Not to mention keeping the secret for decades, probably forever. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, people write books about how awful he was to Stuart. Well, also, neither Stuart nor Pauline are big Paul fans. Yep. So again, I can't think of any reason to invent a scenario where Paul comes off well. Yeah. Um, Daphne, how is this incident presented in TuneIn? Well, it's not. Lewison does use her 1996 book, which is called The Life and Art of Stuart Sutcliffe, as a source eight times in TuneIn, but he does not use the 2002 book that this story is from. So perhaps Lewison has evidence that Pauline is a liar or otherwise unreliable or became so in between 1996 and 2002. Yeah, although if he did have evidence that undermines her credibility, this would be the perfect opportunity to present that evidence and put the story to bed. True. Or maybe he believes Stuart made up the story. But even if he did, his own personal belief wouldn't be enough to totally omit such an important incident. He would need evidence. Yeah, 100% agree. 
I think it would be fine to include his doubts about this story's veracity mm -hmm. for whatever objective reason he may have to doubt it, but he still yeah. is obligated to report it. Correct. Yeah, he does that a few times in TuneIn. He says, well, this is what someone says, and this is what someone else says, mm -hmm. but I find one or the other more or less credible. Right. And this yeah. is Stuart's sister saying, not that she heard it, but that Stuart yes. himself told her this. Yes, in person. In Liverpool. Yeah. Yes. Now, for whatever it's worth, Astrid is on the record saying she doesn't believe John was ever violent towards Stu. Which is her prerogative. But in any case, if true, this incident surely would have impacted the relationship between John and Stuart. And probably Paul as well. Okay, here's where we want to supply the additional info about this incident that we missed the first time we posted this episode a few days ago. Apologies for missing this the first time around, but we have it now, and here we go. In his 2008 book, John Lennon, The Life, Philip Norman conscientiously summarizes Pauline's account of John attacking Stuart, and then he adds, According to Pauline, her family knew about the attack at the time, but in the misery following Stu's death, were unable even to discuss it among themselves, let alone make it public. That it never emerged in the decades that followed was due to Millie Sutcliffe, specifically her determination to have Stu recognized as a creative force in his own right, not merely a footnote to the Beatles. So strongly did Millie feel on this point that she swore her two daughters to place an embargo on Stu's letters and memorabilia, and by implication, this particular story, for 15 years after her own death, which came in 1984. A bit later, Norman addresses Paul's presence at the incident. He writes, Paul McCartney, the only named witness, has no recollection of it. And then this is a quote from Paul. It's possible Stu and John had a fight in a drunken moment, he says, but I don't remember anything that stands out. And also we found out that Norman confirmed in a 2017 interview with Univision News that he personally asked Paul about this for the John Lennon book. And that's where he got that quote. Okay, so, you know, Paul definitely did not confirm the story. His statement's yeah. a little non-committal. Mm -hmm. Could be either he just doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to confirm, or maybe it was just a fistfight and he legitimately doesn't remember. Yeah. Or he, or it was just a fistfight and he does remember. And that's why he said they may have, you know, drunkenly exactly. punched each other, you know, or whatever. But nothing on the level of like saving Private Ryan or, you know, whatever Pauline wrote about. So probably was not as dramatic. I mean, that is kind of a scenario where neither one of them is lying. Sure, that could be. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Stu exaggerated a little, Pauline exaggerated a little more, and Paul is downplaying. You know, it's somewhere in the middle. The truth could be somewhere in the middle. Exactly. Okay, so there you go. Uh, again, we apologize that we missed this the first time uh, we posted this episode. As we said in the syllabus and intro, we are not perfect. <laughs> um, but we are going to be scrupulous about always trying to let you know if we find out after the fact that, you know, we missed something. 
So now we will return to our conversation as it originally aired a few days ago. In the interests of full transparency, we have not edited it. Yeah, so nothing's been deleted. But now you can listen to it with this additional information in mind. But our central point stands. Lewison easily could have, and absolutely should have, addressed Pauline's account in the text. Any violence between John and Stu, even if it was just a drunken fight, is highly relevant to this story, and especially necessary if Lewison wants to go so hard on Paul about his treatment of Stu. Yeah, we've been transparent here, and that's all we're asking for from Lewison. Transparency. All right, so back to the original conversation. If any of our listeners have seen the movie Backbeat, this incident is portrayed in that movie as basically a shoving match, followed by a steamy hug. (laughs) Pauline specifically calls that depiction out as ridiculous and untruthful in her book. And I believe she was consulted or at least interviewed by the backbeat filmmakers so i presume she gave them the story but then they edited it to suit their you know storytelling vision in any case uh pauline reports that Stu and john never talked about it which seems highly plausible and she notes that they did remain friends exchanging letters until Stu's death nevertheless Stu's last performance with the band is on july 1st less than two months later yeah so that's a lot that is a lot Um, it's big yeah um tunin doesn't mention this incident at all not in the text but it does reference it very briefly and obliquely in a footnote which i will just read Uh, this is footnote number nine for chapter 27 lewison references philip norman's shout and writes Among those who doubted Philip Norman's conclusion was Pauline Sutcliffe, Stuart's younger sister. In April 1990, when Kevin Howlett and I interviewed her for a BBC radio documentary series, she said, The connection of Stuart's brain hemorrhage with being beaten up at a Beatles gig is a weak theory. The interval between the two would suggest there was no significance. Lewison continues, She also dismissed outright the very theory she herself would advance 11 years later in her third book about her brother. That John had so viciously kicked Stuart in a fight that it led to his death. Okay. So this requires a bit of explanation. All right. Tudin explains on page 883 that 20 years after Stu's death, an additional idea also gained ground, that there was a link between Stuart's brain hemorrhage and the night in late January 1961 when he was attacked by Teddy Boys. The incident at Latham Hall in the north end of Liverpool, where John fractured a finger, rescuing him. Although the association of these two events would become an accepted truth, it cannot be more than theoretical. Okay, so that's the first violent incident that was referenced in Shout. That incident is detailed in TuneIn, and John is portrayed as the hero there. We'll read that one too. Okay, so from page 603, one night, 
towards the end of January, some Seaforth Teds managed to isolate Stu at Latham Hall and inflict a bad beating. Lewison goes on. When word reached the others that Stu was in trouble, they flew to the rescue. Pete says it happened backstage. Quote, John and I piled in and managed to stop it. And in the ensuing scrap, John broke his finger. Unquote. Neil Aspinall related it a little differently. This is Neil's recollection. I wasn't there because I'd dropped them off and gone home to do my correspondence course. But when I went back to pick them up, they said, there's been a fight in the bogs. John had broken a finger. Pete had a black eye. Paul had been dancing around and Stuart had been kicked in the head. It was Liverpool, one of those lucky we got away with it situations. There is another mention of the same event in another footnote. Millie Sutcliffe apparently mentioned it in an interview in 1970. She said, I always waited for Stuart to come home. It was 3 a.m. when he finally came in without his glasses. He told me, you've had reason to wait up this morning. We've been attacked. I got knocked out, out, unconscious. I was hit from the back. My glasses are non-existent. I couldn't even pick up the pieces, but John got the thug and he broke his wrist, giving him what he'd given me. And then Lewison points out that one fact here is certainly wrong. John fractured his finger, rescuing his friend, not his wrist. Yeah, so so he's told us about John breaking his finger in Stuart's defense three times, three separate times in Tuna. Yeah. But to return to the original footnote, the one that mentions John attacking Stuart. Yes. This footnote is the only reference to John beating up Stuart. And to be clear... Uh, the footnote does not deny that John attacked Stu and kicked him in the head in May 1961. It just makes the point that in 1990, Pauline told Lewison she didn't believe it led to Stuart's death. Now, the footnote doesn't include a direct quote from her to that effect, even though Lewison quoted her directly about the Ted attack also not being the cause. Um. So we don't know what she specifically actually said. But in any case, Pauline apparently changed her mind about the theory and wrote so in her 2002 book. Correct. So there are two layman theories. Okay. The first mm -hmm. is that the Ted attack led to Stu's brain hemorrhage. That's the one published in Shout. Or that John's attack did, which is the one printed in Pauline's book. Yeah, and she writes in the book that some doctors looked at Stewart's imaging and said that there was evidence of a trauma. Yeah, but to be clear, John's attack leading to Stewart's death is pure speculation. Yeah, and in my opinion, pretty specious. And I can certainly see why that would make some people suspicious of her motives for coming out with this and would also make them want to decide she must be lying about Stu telling her this story at all. Well, even if head trauma led to Stu's death, why would it be from John's attack rather than the Seaforth Ted's? Like, there's no reason to conclude that. 
I yeah, I don't I mean the time interval would be my guess is what if you were to ask her that, that's what she would say, but But this we're talking about May nineteen sixty one. Yeah, and he know, died right? in April of nineteen sixty two. So I mean yeah. the John's attack is no more likely than the other attack. Well, I agree. And that and it is a problem because I can certainly understand how people would look at that and say, Well, she just she just put She's in full the of it. thing. Yeah. She's full of it. She put in this, you know, bombshell claim that John killed Stuart in order to sell her book. And so maybe she is also just put in the idea of this attack at all in order to, you know, maybe it's all a fiction in order to sell her book. Um, so I can understand people saying that, but it does seem if she was a consultant on Backbeat, you know, she has been telling this story consistently for much longer. And also, why would she inject Paul McCartney into the mix if it was a lie? That makes no sense. I mean, I agree that, like, beating someone up is one thing. Killing your best friend is, is way beyond. Uh, yes. That's, yes. A, that's a horrible thing yeah. to allege with nothing to really back it up. Yeah. But on the well, other why hand... Why say it? That's it. It's like, why, why say it? I mean, yes. she says it's her theory. She believes it. Whatever. You have no more reason to believe that than the other attack. On the other hand, John beating up a guy is something Tune In has already bragged about several times. Yeah. Most of the book is spent portraying him as a rough, tough teddy boy who was never shy to use his fists mm -hmm. from infancy. Yeah. Lewis and Bragg's about his gangs and his people were, people up. People were risking a thump if they said something he didn't For like. For sure. Yeah. So at the end of the day, all we're talking about is him beating a dude. Yeah. Which is something that we know that he's done. So Yeah, exactly. Yes, he was a violent person. This was not out of character for him to snap and become violent. Yeah. And I know it It sounds like it makes it worse to do it to someone you love as opposed to a rando or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we know what John's triggers are. Yeah. <laughs> the people he loved were who John hurt the most. That's just true, I'm afraid. Pauline also reports a hearsay account in her book that apparently originates from Yoko. She names us her source as yoko's friend marnie Hare, who said that according to yoko john apparently worried or feared that his attack on Stu led to his death again this is not a medical opinion this is just a right. haunting thought of a worst case scenario nothing proposed seriously by any medical professional connected with the case no but you can obviously see that of course that sure. would haunt a person just just the merest thought possibility yes yeah yeah so yeah tune in doesn't deny that john violently attacks Stu and left him bleeding in the street with paul to help him it just also doesn't mention it except in a footnote and it mentions it in such a way that at first read you might think pauline contradicted herself on whether the attack happened at all to me the footnote actually suggests that john definitely did attack stewart yeah 
because if Pauline had told Lewison, you know, that they, they had a conversation about this, obviously. So if Pauline had said to Lewison, oh, that never happened. John never attacked Stuart or Stuart never told me anything about that. Lewison would have phrased it differently. Which, of course. Why would he go out of his way to point out that John's attack on Stuart didn't kill him if he could just say this attack never happened? Yeah. But what he wrote was, well, John didn't kick him so viciously that it killed him i mean to be fair to lewison he did not write that john's attack didn't kill Stu. he just said pauline dismissed the theory in 1990 true because lewison can't prove the cause of stewart's death either no but the big question obviously is why didn't he tell us about this incident in tune in could he realistically believe it's not relevant? <sighs> not relevant to the dynamic between Stuart, John, and Paul? I, I, I don't know. I don't understand that as a choice. Yeah. It seems really relevant to me. Seems super relevant to me. Seems like this would be hanging over them for the final month or so that the Beatles were in Hamburg. I mean, it's unknown who was aware of the incident at the time, other than John, Stu, and Paul, but at least the three of them knew. Yeah. Well, and how would this have affected John in his grief over Stuart's death? Of course, it would have profoundly affected that. Yeah, it's going to affect everything from here on out. Between John and Stuart, even if no one else knows about it. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, Paul knows, so it yeah. would probably affect Paul and Stuart as well. Yeah. So, to be clear, either Lewison, A, has proof that this incident never occurred, and yet chose not to take advantage of his platform and officially debunk it in Tune In, and for some reason tacitly confirmed it in his footnotes or b he has no reason to disbelieve it yet he simply chose to omit it from the text for whatever reason because it makes john look bad mm -hmm. because it stains the john stew relationship or whatever well Supposing Lewison just couldn't bring himself to write about this in TuneIn, that's one thing, but will he at least then modify his attitude moving forward with the story? Is he at least going to incorporate it into his internal view, and will that come out in his writing? Or is he going to continue to compare Paul negatively to John? specifically with regard to how they both treated Stuart. Well, let's see. Yeah, we'll see. Shortly after the violent incident with John, there is another physical altercation in Beetleland. This time, Stuart attacks Paul. 
as you listen to the account of the fight and tune in, ask yourself, is there any ambiguity about who we're meant to side with? Starting from page 650. Although Cynthia would write of how Stu, quote, restrained himself, unquote, when Paul was niggling him, there was one occasion when he didn't, when the top ten witnessed an explosion and yet another fight. Beetle on beetle this time. Stu on Paul. The fight's origin is vague, or varies in the telling, but everyone agrees that a tease or derogatory mention of Astrid set it off. Klaus says Stuart owed Paul some money, and Paul, nagging to get it back, made a flippant remark about Astrid being able to afford it. As Paul would remember, I'd always wondered if he and I ever had a fight, who would win? He was probably wondering too. I assumed I'd win because he wasn't that big, but the strength of love or something entered into him because he was no easy match at all. Tune in goes on. Everyone was amazed by the manner in which Stu, so manifestly puny, could summon up such power, as if his every muted response to eighteen months of snipes and jibes accumulated in one volcanic eruption. As George would put it, Stuart suddenly got this amazing strength that Paul hadn't bargained for. Klaus says, Stu picked Paul up and put him on the piano. Pete says Stu landed Paul such a wallop that he knocked him off his stool. They began struggling on the floor, rolling around, locked in the most ferocious battle, a fury of flailing fists. Paul always speaks of it being a silly fight. You just stay locked for about an hour with nobody doing anything. <laughs> All the old German gangsters were laughing, but it was very serious for us. Tunin continues, it has never been explained how the fight ended or how they were able to work together afterward, because this wasn't a skirmish that cleared the air and left the protagonists friends again. The situation remained awkward, and it was just as well that Stu's remaining days in the Beatles numbered in single figures. It seems a little unnecessary to call Stuart manifestly puny. It's kind of rude. Yeah, but it's framed as a compliment of sorts. Right? Because Stuart was able to hold his own against Paul, even though Paul was so much bigger. Oh, I see. <laughs> there was quite a difference in size. Like, Paul was significantly bigger sure. than, than Stu. That is true. But, you know, again, right at the beginning, we set up how Stu had restrained himself so S Stuart has the moral high ground first of all yes like that's, that's how it is presented because Stu had been tolerating him because he's the bigger person for so long mm -hmm. even though he is the one who threw the first punch right when Paul was sitting down which he's never called out for by the way I mean, it is very clearly set up that Paul has this coming and that Stuart is in the right to take a swing at him. Which is not unique to tune in, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's how this story and this relationship has traditionally been portrayed. Yeah. In other words, nothing new or original. But it's 
unfair to portray Stu as the only one who is having to tolerate a bad situation because Paul has also been tolerating Stu. Yeah. In 1994, Astrid went so far as to say, I think Paul was very brave putting up with Stuart for so long. We'll read that entire quote a little bit later. Here's another interesting quote from Pauline Sutcliffe, not in tune in, but we think it's relevant. In her book, The Beatles' Shadow, she wrote, Stu had also told me how he and John used to borrow money from Paul with the sole purpose of not paying him back. They enjoyed winding him up. Okay, well, that seems relevant. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like important backstory. Or at the very least, it provides some context to the origins of this fight. You know, not to get sidetracked, but Paul has pretty well-documented money anxiety. Yes. Throughout Tune In, he's always struggling to make ends meet, stressing over the price of his musical instruments, sending money from Hamburg back home to his brother and dad. We also know he has stories about his father's gambling, his father going into debt. Money appears to have been a source of conflict and stress to his family throughout his childhood. Yes. Now, Tunin doesn't go into much detail about any of this, but it does point out Paul's cheapness several times. And at least once quotes Pete Best calling Paul a meanie. Which, for our non-British listeners, means tightwad, basically. Mm -hmm. um, Tune In, however, chose not to include the information that Stuart and John, apparently, would borrow money from Paul and not pay it back merely to upset him. I mean, that's it. Paul has been picking on Stu plenty, so maybe <laughs> he's just getting, you know, some petty revenge for himself i'm not saying lewis and has to scold stewart for this behavior and he's not obligated to report this story from pauline sutcliffe if he doesn't want to use her as a source but her statement exists so that makes it negligent to frame Stu as an innocent victim in the conflict with paul and needlessly snide to write that paul was nagging Stu yeah. to repay a loan nagging to get the money back that had quite possibly been borrowed on purpose to make him upset <laughs> guess what it made him upset spitz has coverage of this event from the point of view of dot roan paul's girlfriend at the time who was visiting hamburg with cynthia lennon cynthia powell at the time the two of them were staying with astrid while they were visiting so spitz writes Dot must have sensed things were coming to a head because the next night, while she and Cynthia were dollying up at Astrid's house, the phone rang. It was Stuart, convulsed by a white rage, sounding completely irrational. When he learned that Dot was there, he insisted that Astrid toss me out, Dot recalls. Astrid calmed him down enough to determine what had happened. Paul and Stuart had finally had it out, not in private, but on stage, 
in the middle of a set in a full view of an astonished German audience. So according to Dodd, who was there, Stewart called up Astrid and demanded that Astrid throw Dodd out of the house. And he was screaming and having a meltdown. That's never reported in TuneIn. Why not? Well, because it doesn't reflect well on Stuart. <laughs> but that's not a good reason. Why wouldn't you include <laughs> that? Well, yeah, it's it's definitely an oversight, for sure. Dot is still alive, and Lewison actually interviewed Astrid, so he could have put this story in if he'd wanted to show both sides of this conflict between Paul and Stu and establish that Stuart was not always tolerant and above it all and gentle and perfect. That he could lose his temper and lash out as well at people who didn't deserve it. Yeah. Because yeah. he was a human being. Mm -hmm. Here's another little detail I thought was important, but for whatever reason was also left out of Tunin's account. It's from Hunter Davies' book. He could become really hysterical when he was angry, says Astrid. When someone describes their boyfriend that way, I yeah. consider that important information that I would like to have. Thank you very much. Like, I would have liked to have read that in TuneIn because that helps flesh out the character of Stuart for me. Mm-hmm. I like to know if a man gets hysterical when he's angry. Well, sure. Maybe that has something to do with why he attacked Paul. Maybe he was overreacting. Yeah. And maybe that had something to do with his condition, his medical condition. Or maybe sometimes, you know, he went into a rage and overreacted. Right. Like it could have been just stew's personality maybe he had a long fuse but when he mm -hmm. when he got angry he got hysterical yeah and acted out of character that's exactly how john described stewart attacking paul that's right that's right maybe he was suffering some side effects of his yep. um illness yes yes at this point he's been having headaches for a while now and tune in tracks the ways that as stew's neurological condition deteriorated it naturally began causing mood swings and personality changes. For example, on page 708, Stu created terrible scenes in Astrid's house, throwing food about the room and shouting. And I feel like this deterioration is somewhat well-known, and yet I don't think I've ever seen a book postulate that maybe this underlying progressive illness was a contributing factor to Stuart raging out on Paul that night. Hmm. Why do people assume so easily that, well, if anyone attacks Paul, he must have done something to deserve it? Well, and to what we discussed at the beginning of the episode, I think it's also possible that in addition to expressing his anger and resentment towards Paul, Stuart may also be redirecting some of his hurt and anger at John onto Paul. Right. And if Paul was there to witness the attack and helped Stuart back to the top 10, he might be angry at Paul. Because when someone you dislike sees you in a vulnerable position, it's normal to resent that. 
Of course. I mean, that creates complicated feelings, especially because as we discussed, John could treat Stuart shabbily as opposed to how he treated Paul. And we know John never raised a hand at Paul. Yeah. Maybe Stuart's ashamed. Even yeah. though he obviously he has nothing to be ashamed of, but maybe part of him wants to prove he's tough and can fight. Yeah. And I'm not trying to downplay their beef or make Paul out to be blameless. I'm just saying there may be a complex web of issues here. Mm -hmm. And maybe Stu has lots of reasons to explode. Beyond Paul deserving it for making a rude comment about Astrid's money. Yeah, maybe it's actually not all about Paul's jealousy. So let's talk about Stuart's departure from the Beatles. From page 660. By his own admission, Paul was mean to Stuart to the end. Paul says, quote, I was pretty nasty to him on the last day, but I caught his eye on stage and he was crying. It was one of those feelings when you're suddenly very close to someone, unquote. For reference, this is a quote from Paul looking back on Stuart's death six years later. It's from the Hunter Davies book, and I'll read the full thing because it's abridged in tune in in ways that might be significant so the full quote from paul is i was pretty nasty to him on the last day we were leaving hamburg and he was staying behind with astrid i caught his eye on stage as he was playing with us for the last time he was crying it was one of those feelings when you're suddenly very close to someone now, in Paul's account, it's clear that Stuart is crying, at least in Paul's perception, because this was his last time on stage with them. So, you know, it's the end of an era, sentimental, mm -hmm. and Stuart's a sensitive guy. Yeah. Now we will read how this quote is abridged in Tunin, with no ellipse, by the way. Lewison quotes Paul saying, I was pretty nasty to him on the last day. But, in brackets, I caught his eye on stage, and he was crying. Doesn't that make it seem that Stuart is crying because Paul had just been nasty to him? Uh, yeah, I suppose you could infer that. Like, he stopped being nasty once he saw that he made him cry. Mm -hmm. What is also interesting is that immediately after this paragraph... Lewison recounts that Astrid remembers there being plenty of tears and requests for forgiveness for misdeeds and misbehavior. Almost everyone was drunk, pilled, and emotional, and when it was all over and they'd had something to eat, they wandered around and around the market, as was their Sunday morning way. I'd sure love to see the original quote from Astrid. I'd like to know who it was asking for forgiveness. Well, I'd like to know too, Daphne, because it makes a huge difference if some of those tears and requests for forgiveness were Paul's. Right. Or were they John's? Well, I'd like to know that too. Well, okay. Me too. 
I feel like if Paul ran off immediately after the show and refused to celebrate with everyone else, Lewison would have included that information. Mm-hmm. So from my point of view, it's much more likely that Paul was there at the send-off. If he was nasty to him by his own admission before the show, but then after the show, they were drinking and Paul was saying, sorry, I was such a jerk, Stu. Wish you the best. Good luck with your painting career, man. Then he's not mean to the end. And again, this quote is from an interview with Lewison. So I don't know why... If Astrid was vague, if she was the one who used the passive voice and said there were tears and pleas for forgiveness, which seems unlikely, but maybe she did. I don't understand why Lewis wouldn't follow that up with, oh, tell me more about that. Who was asking whom for forgiveness? Let's move on to Stuart's death, because it's quite interesting how that's handled as well. So, as we all know, Stuart tragically died much too young of a brain aneurysm. On page 880, we are told the story of how the Beatles returned to Hamburg in April of 1962 on their third tour, not knowing yet that Stuart has died, and then being met at the airport by Astrid, who tells them. John, Paul, and Pete saw Astrid and Klaus, who'd come to collect Millie. Where's Stu? they asked. And it was here and now that Astrid told them he was dead. She would remember. Paul tried to be comforting. He put his arm around me and said how sorry he was. Pete wept. He just sat there and cried his eyes out. John went into hysterics. We couldn't make out, in the state we were both in, whether he was laughing or crying because he did everything at once. I remember him sitting on a bench, huddled over, and he was shaking, rocking backward and forward. Lewiston then takes a moment to empathize with John, writing, John went out of control, just like when Uncle George, his surrogate father, had died when John was 14, and when his mother was killed when he was 17. Everybody died on John. John didn't laugh when he heard Stuart died, as people have made out, Paul insists, indicating a reaction far more psychologically complex. Okay, so that's nice. This passage is very kind and empathetic towards John and is very nice to hear Paul advocating for John. Um, The focus here is definitely on John's loss. Yes, there are several additional passages throughout the book evoking our sympathy for John and his grief. On page 885, Lewison declares, quote, the loss to John was incalculable, unquote. He offers a generous eulogy of Stuart and his contributions to the Beatles, and he states his opinion that Stuart was John's soulmate. All right, so let's take a look at how Paul was affected by Stuart's death. For Paul himself, Stuart's death was tough in a different way. He was shocked and saddened but he also had to reconcile his position within the unfolding scene. He'd openly teased, taunted, 
irritated and derided him for two years or more, his jealousy of Stu's friendship with John sustained. The last real time he'd seen Stuart was when he'd so needled him, Stuart was finally goaded into a fight on stage in front of an audience. It was declared a draw, but everyone talked of how surprisingly strong Stuart was. Paul had started the scrap and not won. When Stuart was in Liverpool in February, he'd mostly avoided Paul. There are quotes about that trip from John, George, Pete, and Mike McCartney, but not Paul. Mike had exchanged letters with Stuart and was now being quoted in the Echo talking about him. Paul wasn't. Okay. So let's dig into this passage from TuneIn, because there's a lot here. Presumably, what Lewison is saying is that Paul not only should feel bad, but should feel way worse than the other Beatles for how he treated Stu, because he tells us that he'd openly teased, taunted, irritated, and derided him for two years or more. But the confusing part to me is that John, who was Stuart's best friend, and George, who was also apparently a great friend of Stuart's, did those things as well. And John was unusually verbally vicious to Stu in front of other people and once beat Stuart bloody and left him in the street. So once again, I'm trying to understand why Paul would feel terrible shame and guilt about his behavior. And John and George would feel none about their behavior. Well... Maybe Paul was just the only one who ever had to answer for his behavior in public. Because he's always the one who's singled out for hating Stu. He's, he's the only one who really gets the question. Also, it, it seems to me that George and Stu patch things up fairly well. I mean, maybe the fist fights were only during the Scottish tour and they'd gotten along fine since then. Mm -hmm. But that still leaves the pretty big problem of john's attack on stewart mm. mm -hmm. or maybe lewison's just taking his cue from john here who said in hunter davies we were awful to stew sometimes especially paul always picking on him i used to explain to him afterwards that we didn't dislike him really okay john um but then again hunter writes immediately after this that they felt a bit guilty about how they treated Stu, which I'm assuming he got from John, but no feelings of guilt on John's part are reported in TuneIn. No, no, no guilt on John and George's behalf, but we do hear about Paul's jealousy again. Uh, Paul hmm. picked on Stu for two years or more. His jealousy of Stu's friendship with John sustained sustained so okay so paul's jealousy of Stu's friendship with john was sustained so it was it was constant unwavering even after paul witnessed john beat stewart into the pavement paul was still jealous of that friendship i guess i mean that's what we're meant to believe I mean, obviously, as we noted, TuneIn doesn't report that beating. And I have to say that if it had, I think that would have made it a lot harder to justify 
this framing of Paul's jealousy as being sustained and to hearken back to it again, even after Stuart has died. That'd be a harder case to make. Yes. The other thing I'm struck by about this quote is the laundry list of Paul's sins against Stuart. He's teasing, taunting, irritating, and deriding him. Like, I, f- I feel like four basically synonyms is excessive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think John's ever described as harassing, mocking, humiliating, insulting people when we're being told about him bullying disabled people on the street, for example. No, we were told that uh, John believes that's their problem, not his. We barely get one of those words about John's bad behavior. So, I mean, John gets laundry lists of good adjectives and compliments. As the steward. But also, we don't have any specifics on what Paul actually did or said to Stuart. That's true. Although Paul himself used the words pretty nasty in Hunter Davies. So, I mean, I'm sure he could be, you know, a trash can. Yeah, Paul can definitely be an asshole, especially when he is angry and feels backed into a corner. He can bite, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, if you don't actually have any specifics of what he did and said, then there's a limit to how much you can expect us to judge him or how much judgment you can fairly heap on him. Yeah. I want specifics. (laughs) In what way was he also paul has been doing these terrible things has been taunting Stu for two years or more that doesn't fit the timeline Stu was in the band for 18 months like he didn't buy his base until january 21st 1960 and 18 months later was his last night with the band immediately after which john george and paul went back to liverpool so that that leaves six months or more unaccounted for. So if if Paul was <laughs> insulting Stu in absentia for six months or more, either before or after his tenure with the band, I guess, I would like to see the source for that. Well, Lewison himself wrote that when Stu attacked Paul, it was as if his every muted response to 18 months of snipes and jabs mm. accumulated in one volcanic eruption. So the extra six months or more must have been after. Well, it must be because I'm sure that Lewison has a very clear timeline in mind. But then again, he also wrote that the fight night was the last real time they'd seen (laughs) each other. So when is Paul continuing this taunting? I mean, Stuart did visit Liverpool, but Tunin told us that when he did, quote, he'd mostly avoided Paul, unquote. So that seems very inconsistent. Yeah. When are these six extra months or more of teasing, taunting, irritating, and deriding supposed to have taken place? Did Lewison get confused with his own timeline? The part where we're told that the last real time Paul and Stuart saw each other was when they fought on stage is confusing to me. I'm pretty sure we just talked about how the last time Stuart and Paul were together, you know, mm-hmm. it was Stuart's last day and he sang a song and and Paul was still being nasty to him, but then noticed he was crying and suddenly felt very close to him. 
Was that the yep. same day as the fight? Can't be, right? No, I think by saying the last real time he'd seen Stuart, I think he's implying that they didn't really see each other on Stuart's last day. Although, again, Paul speaks of it very movingly in the Hunter Davies bio when he recalls Stuart crying. Did Lewison get confused with his own timeline again? That would be the most charitable explanation. And I, you know, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't stretch that far. I am forced to conclude that this whole paragraph is written with an eye toward deliberately exaggerating Paul's role as antagonist. That is by far the most simple and logical explanation. Tunin claims the last time they saw each other was the night of the fist fight and that Paul was taunting and deriding Stu for two years or more. Neither of those things are true as far as we know. Here's another incredible sentence. Paul had so needled him, Stu was finally goaded into a fight on stage in front of an audience. So it's Paul's fault that Stuart threw the first punch by making a comment about Astrid that nobody remembers what it was. Right. Well, so was, and also nagging for his stupid money back. I don't understand the morality of TuneIn. Is it okay to throw the first punch or not? Well, is it so okay that even if you do throw the first punch, you still didn't start the fight? I guess, to be fair, there are some things one could say about someone else's significant other that are bad enough to deserve a punch. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, well, I don't know about deserve, but there, but there are comments you could make to go yes. somebody in but we have no evidence that that's what happened well right just because the possibility exists doesn't <laughs> mean that you can conclude that that's the case right also goaded into a fight is just completely incorrect goaded into well, a fight would be like... like like paul threw a drink on him and was like come on come on what are you gonna do you gonna exactly throw the first punch throw the first punch Stuart. let's go man let's go that's goading exactly. somebody into a fight that's not even close to what happened how can you write Stuart was goaded into a fight by paul okay and then how about this sentence it was declared a draw but everyone talked of how surprisingly strong Stuart was paul had started the scrap and not won okay so now you're flat out stating that paul started the scrap which is incorrect which is factually incorrect it is not true if you want to be technical he didn't even really start the argument because if what he's complaining about is how stewart would borrow money from him and then not pay him back on purpose which is what stewart's sister said that he did that's also not Paul starting the fight. So if Paul's like, hey, where's my money, by the way? And Stuart's like, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. And then Paul says something rude about your rich girlfriend. That's not Paul starting a scrap. No. Which, by TuneIn's account, is the sequence of events. <laughs> I mean, we don't know the exact exchange, so we can't <laughs> judge their tone. Oh, that that wasn't a faithful reenactment that you just performed there yes. <laughs> and also paul had started the scrap and not won 
if the fight is called a draw, meaning, you know, nobody came out and, you know, gave a belt to one of them and mm -hmm. raised their fist up in the air and declared him a winner, fine. That is correct. There was not a winner there. There was no bell. But it would be much more accurate to write, Stuart had started the scrap, but not won. Uh, yeah. The point that Lewison is trying to make is that anything less than Paul utterly crushing Stuart is an embarrassing failure on his part. Not just compounds if he can get us to believe <laughs> that Paul was the one who started it. So not only is Paul a jerk, he's an embarrassment. Oh, yeah. He's jealous. He can't win fights against manifestly puny tiny people. <laughs> and he'd openly tease, taunted, irritated, and derided Stuart. Yeah, it's a lot. So reports of this fight vary only slightly. Paul downplays it, calling it silly and basically saying they just kind of rolled around. Tony Sheridan corroborates that, says Paul never punched Stu. Of course, he says that in the context of deriding Paul for being yes. a sissy fighter, but still. Yes. Uh, John just says they ended up fighting and Stu hit Paul on stage. Spitz quotes an unnamed observer saying they beat the shit out of each other, but nothing specific. And that doesn't seem to jive with the other accounts. Um, in any case, all the accounts say that Stu initiated the violence, i.e. started the fight. And all accounts, other than Spitz's unnamed source, seem to suggest that Paul never even hit Stuart back. Make of that what you will, listeners. But at the very least, I think it's incredibly childish and in very poor taste, knowing what we know, but weren't told in tune in to write with such relish that paul hadn't won the fight as if it's a blight on paul's manhood that he couldn't easily flatten this tiny little dude yeah whom he'd seen get kicked in the head on two separate occasions maybe the question is what was the point of framing this incident the way tunin did Let's continue. <laughs> okay, still on page 881. The upshot was that, aside from the other Beatles, Paul was disliked by the people who loved Stuart, notably Astrid, Klaus, and Stuart's family. And Stuart's death slammed the lid on it. As Paul would concede, it was really sad for me because I hadn't liked him. And it's kind of too late when someone dies. You can't go back and say, hey, Stu, I was only kidding. His mum and his sister never felt too good about me. Yeah, well, I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> Why would they? Right. We need to point out that, like, we don't think that anyone who dislikes Paul is wrong or, you know, must secretly like him. Like, I'm sure there are plenty of people who don't like him. And that's fine. 
Of course. If I was Stuart's mom, I wouldn't like Paul either. But like Stuart's mom also doesn't like John and John doesn't like her. So I don't even know why it was necessary to include that. But the most egregious thing here is saying that Paul was disliked by Astrid, Klaus, and Stuart's family. Now, I'll concede Stuart's family for sure. Um, I'll even mm -hmm. concede Klaus because Klaus and Paul don't seem to have a particularly warm relationship at any time. Um, mm -hmm. But Astrid, I, I just got to say that's not true unless she's lying. But unless she's lying, yeah. She's never said anything mean or nasty about Paul that I'm aware of. And she's pretty blunt. So unless she's the completely fake diplomat talking mad trash behind <laughs> Paul's back, then why would Lewison write that the lid was slammed? First of all, it's uncalled for. And secondly, it's misleading. Yeah. Disliked is an active word. It means you have actively negative feelings for a person. It's very different from Astrid saying, Paul was so calm and diplomatic, I could never get close to him. Well, yeah, it's completely different. And when you add the lid slamming bit, you're saying Astrid actively disliked him forever. End of story. Of course. That's what that means. Why else would you write that? It's one thing to write that. And then it's another thing to omit all of the quotes from future Astrid that are very warm about Paul, which TuneIn does. We will share another one with you right now. Here's a clip from Astrid in 2005. They were all jumping up and down and cuddling me and being pleased to see me. And when I told them that Stuart died, uh, Pete just bursted out in tears. Paul was just holding me, you know, in his beautiful way. And John just freaked out. I mean, that doesn't necessarily prove anything, but does it sound like she actively dislikes Paul? In an interview from May 1994 that was published in Beatles' book Monthly Magazine, Astrid said, All this fuss about Paul and Stuart not having a very nice relationship is just not right. Paul had been a musician since he was young, and in such a perfect way, in such a talented way. When I met Paul, he played drums, bass, piano, and guitar. Let me ask you this. What would you do if you were in a band and were a brilliant artist and one of your best friends is just fiddling around and doesn't even practice, but is content to just look great, to look rock and roll? I know what I'd do. I would go crazy. I think Paul was very brave, putting up with Stuart for so long. He never practiced. Never. But John would say, oh, Stu looks rock and roll. That's enough. Whenever Stuart wanted to talk to me, he would just hand his bass guitar to Paul, and Paul would take over. Or if Paul was on the piano, Stuart would give the bass to Klaus, and Klaus would play with the Beatles. This would be in the early morning, when there was only about ten people in the club. Klaus would just sit on a table, playing the bass, and they had fun. They were just young boys wanting to have fun, have a drink, and chase the girls. I would like people to know that they weren't always the Beatles. They were just four very normal, young, very funny boys well that is such a lovely and mature quote i also love that she called paul a brilliant artist mm -hmm. i would have loved to read that and tune in this is the third quote from astrid we've read that 
I think had it been included in TuneIn would have gone a long way in rounding out the picture and just giving us the story from multiple points of view. Put it in some perspective. Honestly, it's the least you could do to round out the story. I don't know anything about their private relationship, but I know Astrid speaks warmly about Paul in the 90s. And as far as I know, forever afterwards. But more to the point, there's no direct quote supplied by Astrid or anyone else that Astrid disliked Paul. So again, I would like to know, I demand to know why Lewison chose to write that. Why did he tell the readers of Tune In that Astrid disliked Paul? And for that matter, even though I agree instinctively that Klaus disliked Paul. <laughs> yeah. I think it's probably not great methodology to just state it as fact in Tune In without testimony to that end from someone. Yes, great point. Returning to Astrid, she is the definition of an involved party and firsthand witness to all of this. So if some of her quotes are used, and not others, and there appears to be a pattern about which of her quotes are used versus others, then that's something that should be considered and questioned. Yeah. Lewison has now written that it was the stark truth of the matter that everyone in the Beatles' 1960 entourage hated Paul, and that Paul was disliked by Klaus, Astrid, and Astrid's family without any direct quotes from any of those people to support those claims. Just walking in the rain Getting soaking wet Now, I imagine that some listeners might feel at this point that we are being insensitive or are trying to villainize Stu by suggesting he might share any blame for the conflicts with Paul. And I just want to make the point that that is not at all what we are trying to do. We are, again, just arguing for nuance and balance. I understand the impulse to think, you know, Stuart died young of a terrible disease. He was robbed of everything that Paul went on to receive. Fame, artistic freedom and acclaim, marriage and family, and a long, prosperous life. Just let Stu be the hero and let Paul be the bad guy. Paul has been phenomenally lucky overall, so just let him take all the blame for the Stuart situation. And I understand that impulse, I really do, but we're talking about Tune In Here, a biographical historical work which means that it is obligated to present the relevant facts and evidence transparently and without hedging, and then to let the reader decide for themselves. Speaking of, I'm pretty sure plenty of people can and will listen to our episode and the evidence and the opinions we've presented, and will still conclude that Stu was a nicer person than Paul and that Paul deserves most of the blame. And that is okay. Well, exactly. I don't think anybody is going to listen to all of the evidence and the arguments here and think that Stuart comes away 
like some kind of awful person. I hope not, because that's not what we're trying to say. I, I don't even think we could do that if we wanted. I mean, he didn't do anything yeah. objectionably terrible, but I don't think right. Paul did either. Mm-hmm. I mean, what in the world? What did he do? <laughs> he was critical of his bass playing, which Stewart didn't even care about. Right. <laughs> Come on. That's nothing. And yes, Stu had a tragically premature death, but that wasn't Paul's fault. Well, and that death is also irrelevant. If we're talking about a historical biography, the fact that Stuart died has no objective bearing on determining blame. It's irrelevant. Yeah, that's true, too. But even if you do balance it out, I mean, Stu's not going to come out as a bad person. Not at all. We just think that there's definitely a thumb on the scale here in Tune In. Like, there's definitely an attempt to make Paul come off as bad as humanly possible. And it's just not necessary. Yeah, or appropriate, or acceptable. Well, and also this is supposed to be Paul's biography. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what are, What's happening here? I mean, I do, I do think, you know, John needs to be accountable for beating Stu up. Yes. I can't believe that that's even a controversial (laughs) opinion, to be honest. But at the same time, like, I do have empathy for the situation that he's in with two of his best friends who don't get along. And obviously, he doesn't want to alienate either one of them. I think it's outrageous that TuneIn doesn't go into that. You know, to your point, like, previous Beatle books haven't either, but that's not an excuse just because somebody else didn't already do it yeah to be fair to us in this episode we have argued for empathy with all three of them with john paul and Stuart. yes none of them were perfect of course not you know some of their actions were worse objectively than some of their other actions let's put it that way but that doesn't mean that all three of them couldn't be jerks mm-hmm. and and couldn't be great people so for god's sake let's just try to balance it out and not play favorites i don't care who your favorite is make an effort to see it from everybody's perspectives and to represent everybody's perspective well, you can't be my love baby you ain't got the style I'm gonna get some real gone love that'll ride a cool cat while Gonna move, roll and ride on down Gonna get me a gal that'll go out on the town All right, so that is all for Paul's jealousy of Stuart Sutcliffe. However, we do have more passages to share about jealous Paul and his evil twin, envious Paul. <laughs> Okay, so this first one is about some photos taken by Astrid. And you'd think it would just be a small thing, except that Lewis makes mention of it three separate times throughout the book. Mm-hmm. So either it's his theory that it has a grave import on the story, or he just really likes it. I'm not sure why it gets mentioned so many times, but um, the first time is on page 901, and this is about a um, little photo shoot john and george are visiting astrid at her place 
and it says that Pete didn't go because he didn't go anywhere with him and had never been to the house, and Paul didn't go because he couldn't. Italics. And Astrid is like showing them Stuart's painting studio in the house, and that's where she takes the photos of John and George. Okay. So either he wasn't invited or he was invited and declined, but we don't know. We do not know. So on page 901, it says, She gave them prints of the photos that, John said, made Paul mad with envy. I mean, if that was the only mention, it, it would, again, it'd be nothing, but it's harkened back to two more times in the book. On page 961, readers, you can make up your own minds, but it's a pretty unflattering paragraph about Paul getting Mike, his brother, to take some photos of him. And then Lewis and opines that Paul was after a strong image he could use alongside Astrid's recent half-shadow photos of John and George, the session he was still sore about missing. And then the third mention is in a footnote when Ringo and Paul are described going to get some photos um, from another photographer, and John's full quote of Paul being mad with envy is again quoted in full in a footnote footnote 66 if you're interested obviously we don't know for sure why this is mentioned three separate times in Tunin but the fact remains that it's unflattering to Paul on multiple levels a he was mean to Stu so he is either not comfortable or not welcome going to visit Astrid in the house she shared with Stuart so that's how it starts out and then b John, George, and Astrid are having a lovely personal moment, which Paul has no appreciation for. All he cares about is that they got classy photos and he didn't, which makes him mad. So that's shallow, insensitive, mm. and arrogant, all, all in one. And then he gets to pair it with his take on Mike being under duress to take Paul's photos because Paul wants to look famous in photos and gave Mike a camera not caring about Mike's photography just because he wanted good photos of himself. <laughs> so Paul Paul is real obsessed with having good photos of himself. Loves to be photographed. Well, of course he does. But so does Stuart and so does John. <laughs> I mean, we have tons of photographs of Stuart they posed for all those photos yeah as we read before it was for some reason important to establish paul's envy of john in the prologue of the book specifically john's ability to stick two fingers up to the world in a way paul envied but would rarely do in full view so paul is envious of john's courage essentially mm -hmm. and then later in the book we are told paul envied john's original repartee neither of those are direct quotes from anyone those are lewison's words he could have written admired but he chose for reasons be known only to him to go with envy as we've established paul is also framed as being incredibly possessive of john constantly wanting his time attention and approval Meanwhile, we never get even a hint that John is possessive of Paul or desirous of his attention and admiration. Hmm. 
So, the big question, why does this matter? If Paul is jealous, why not call him out on it? Well, Daphne, it's not just that Paul is called jealous. It's that he's called jealous over and over and over again. Identifying a situation in which Paul himself openly acknowledges his jealousy is one thing. Repeatedly name-calling him is another thing entirely. Yes, and it's also another thing entirely to assign jealousy as the motive for multiple specific choices and actions of Paul's with no support for there being any connection. Yes, this is a deliberate choice on Lewison's part, and his repetition of this word drives home to readers that jealousy is a pervasive characteristic of Paul's. Additionally, it creates the expectation that Paul's behavior in the future should be viewed through this prism. Throughout Stewart's time with the Beatles, Paul is presented as petty, emotional, irrational, and difficult. TuneIn repeatedly undermines his legitimate complaints about Stewart's mediocre bass playing and lack of commitment and effort to the band mm -hmm. in favor of its portrayal of Paul as a perpetually squeaky wheel, annoying everyone around him. In doing this, Tunin emphatically and unequivocally sides with John Lennon's desire to have a loved one in the band whose primary contribution is companionship to him personally, regardless of Paul's reservations. In other words, John's insistence on including an intimate who doesn't contribute musically to the Beatles is clearly valued over band unity or Paul McCartney's ability to perform at his best. Tunin has already informed us of its belief that Lennon is owner of the Beatles and that the band is ultimately his to shape or sabotage nurture or neglect however he pleases in this paradigm mccartney is set up to fail conflict was a necessary and often fruitful element of the beatles creative process and collaboration relies on an exchange of ideas an appreciation of that collaboration requires respect for the perspectives and opinions of both Lennon and McCartney. And a book about the Beatles should certainly care about the musical growth and evolution of the band. However, as we complete our sixth episode of Fine Tuning, it is abundantly clear that Tune In is more invested in identifying Paul as an antagonist in the Beatles story and establishing a divide between Paul McCartney and John Lennon. In this episode, we've shown how TuneIn uses its own characterization of Paul as excessively jealous and hated by everyone in order to undermine his credibility. 
Let's review Lewison's most problematic choices. Lewison validated, without any corroboration, Stewart's resentful claim that everyone in Hamburg hates Paul, going so far as to declare it the stark truth of the matter. When describing Stewart's attack on Paul, Lewison flatly accused Paul of starting the fight, despite consensus amongst all eyewitnesses that Stewart very definitely was the one who threw the first punch. Lewison explicitly accused Paul of harassing Stewart for two years or more, which is six months longer than Stewart was even in the Beatles. He used the following words to describe Paul's behavior. Snipes, jibes, needling, nagging, snippy, sniping, deriding, taunting, teasing, irritating. He omitted all of Astrid's positive commentary that showed understanding of Paul's position and that would undercut Tunin's negative portrayal of Paul. As a reminder, Astrid said, among other things, that Paul was very brave for putting up with Stuart for so long, a brilliant artist who just wanted the band to be great, and she said that Paul had every right to moan about Stuart. Lewison also omitted any hint that Stuart had normal human foibles. To name a few examples, that he got really hysterical when angry, according to his girlfriend, that he deliberately upset Paul by borrowing money and not paying him back on purpose, according to his sister, that he never practiced bass and was only interested in going up on that stage and posing, again, according to Astrid, and that he could be pretentious and stretch the truth a bit, as his letters reveal. Lewison also omitted, except for a brief aside in a footnote, that John himself beat Stu up and left him bleeding in the street two months before Stu left the band, and that apparently Paul McCartney helped Stu back to the safety of their rooms afterward. However, he did take care to tell us three separate times how John had earlier broken a finger rescuing Stu in a fight. He framed Paul as inarguably the Beatle who treated Stuart the worst and explicitly used the word bully to describe Paul's behavior in particular. And Lewison repeatedly undermined Paul's criticisms of Stuart's musicianship by characterizing them as a mask for his prolonged, sustained, personal jealousy. There is a clear pattern to these editorial choices, and we've shown, and will continue to show, that it is consistent throughout the book. The selection of certain words and omitting of vital information repeatedly result and the best possible characterization of John Lennon and the worst possible characterization of Paul McCartney. And at this point, we can no longer be expected to accept this as coincidence. The sun is fading away That's the end of the day As the July turns to moonlight, I'll be on
I knew Paul had it in for him, and Paul was beginning to challenge John for the leadership of the group, and it was only a matter of time. To Paul, I think it was a difficult because he felt we need a better bass player. John just turned around and said, it doesn't matter, he looks good. Next time on Fine Tuning. Spanner in the works, and guess who throws it? Ooh, who? Yeah. The Beatles' resident problem child. He's upset about something, we're not sure exactly what, so we're gonna really dive in, try to figure it out what his problem is. Oh my god, what is Paul's problem now? Thank you for listening to Another Kind of Mind. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast series, Fine Tuning. Got thoughts, questions, disagreements? You can find and follow us on social media. But of course, the absolute best way to show your support is to recommend ACOM to others. You can also email us at acompodcast at gmail.com.